You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. There has been an awakening. Have you felt it? You are listening to Star Wars The Saga Continues. Your hosts, Kyle Avery and Tim Jirasi, are scouring the holonet for news and bringing you all of the latest updates on the future of the Star Wars universe. And the future is bright indeed, so we invite you to join us on this exciting journey as the saga continues. Always in motion is the future. This is just the beginning. You'll find out full of surprises. Not over yet. No, there is another. Chewie, we're home. Hey there, Star Wars fans, and welcome to a brand new episode of Star Wars The Saga Continues, your podcast for all the latest news and rumors regarding all the cool and exciting upcoming projects in the Star Wars universe. But today, we are here to talk about Solo, A Star Wars Story. Um, I would say as always, but I haven't been on for the past couple episodes, so I guess I'm your uh, returning host, Kyle, and I've got uh, my uh, my two co-pilots, Paul and Tim, with me. How's it going, guys? What's up, Kyle? Welcome back. I mean, me and Paul kept the pilot seat warm for you, but we're glad to have you back and doing your first episode as a married man now. So congratulations. Boy. Great to have you back. Yeah, well, it was so great to have you guys out here for the wedding. Um, man, I can't believe it's already been. It's been a while since I've been on because I know I missed the last two episodes. But I mean, the time's just been flying by. I've been married mm-hmm. almost a month now. But uh, yeah, life is good. I'm enjoying married life and uh you know, very excited to get back into the Star Wars discussion and uh, get back into the swing of things with the podcast here, especially, you know, what better time to jump right back into it than with uh, the release of a new movie and uh, us getting to talk about all the Star Wars goodness that comes along with that. So, um, you know, we've got a few news stories and things like that to talk about, but we'll kind of save that for the end and let's just dive right into the movie here. Um, so where should we start? You guys want to just do kind of first overall impressions or maybe what your, uh, well, I guess maybe you guys might have talked about this already on the last episode, but kind of impre- or, uh, expectations going into the movie um, and then kind of first thoughts coming out of it. Uh, well, I-, I guess I'll go first. If that's okay with you, Tim. No, go for it. All right. Um, so. I, you know, I, you know, obviously Star Wars is, is for us is going to be, we're going to be excited no matter what, for the most part, unless you're Kyle and you were apprehensive about this movie. Um, just kidding. I'm just kidding, Kyle. I'm just already kidding. going there. I know. I'm already going there. No, no, no. But I, but I understood people's apprehension. Han Solo is not a slam dunk as far as overall mainstream popularity, you know, characters, I think for the older crowd, he's more popular, like more, I'd say my age slash older, I'm 36. So, um, you know, I just, he's not a a younger generation character. So, you know, I was always like, yeah, I'm not like excited about getting a solo, a young Han Solo movie, but I love Star Wars and I'm going to love it anyway. And, you know, I knew we we're going to get probably some, you know, interesting things. So 
Um, the trailers had me really excited. I, I just it maybe because it, it was Star Wars. It could be Star Wars anything. I'm gonna get excited. Um, but I was I started to get really I started to get really excited about seeing Han and Chewie meet for the first time. That's a big. I mean, that's a that's a duo. That's a household duo right there. You mm-hmm. know, everyone knows Han and Chewie. So that I knew that was gonna be special and everything. But uh, you know, I I kept my you know my my expectations in check. And it was interesting because when they released this movie. You know, so early. I mean, it was weeks before it came out. They started. You know, Disney felt very confident. Obviously, they were start. They started showing screens of this movie all over the place, trying to generate a hype for it. And you know, but in and all the reactions were about not exactly what I expected. I but I just wanted to be, people to enjoy themselves, and that's what you know. I thought the consensus, you know, said, and I was like, okay, it's cool. I've stayed away from spoilers. And, um, you know, I, I went in and just kind of excited to see a Star Wars movie and I came out just, are we, are we going, are we going, are we, are we going there? The whole thing? I don't want to, should I wait to hold my, my, uh, final opinion or should I just go into it? Well, you can go into a final opinion. Let's, let's just kind of do an overview of like general impressions first and then we'll kind of go through the story and just yeah. kind of do a, a plot synopsis and talk about, you know, certain points as we go through there. All right. So yeah. So for me, going into it, it was just uh, you know, I was, I was excited, but you know, I, I guess you know, I guess maybe my expectations were a little bit lower. I wasn't expecting like a you know a, an amazing film, but I wanted to enjoy myself. And I have to say, I don't think I've enjoyed myself more at a Star Wars movie since the first time I saw Rogue One, um, and that was like you know a spiritual awakening almost because Force Awakens, it was it was a you know a film where I loved it. Because it was the first film in forever, I never thought we were going to get Star Wars again, and that was special. And and the Force Awakens will always have a special place in my heart. But I had problems with the film as the film kind of. I watched the film more and more and more, and I just kind of, I just things kind of bugged me a little bit more. And then with Rogue One, that's when the first thing for me kind of started, where I'm like, okay, I'm really this is the movie, the first Star Wars movie I fell in love with since like Revenge of the Sith. That was the last Star Wars film that I really just loved, and like you know, even, even more than Phantom Menace and Attack, Attack of the Clones, I liked those movies, but I didn't love them as much as I wanted to because I had some issues with certain things. Now, Phantom Menace has changed over time. I love I love that movie even more than I did back then. But Rogue One, I say, was the first like Star Wars movie that I fell in love with, and I watched a ton, and could not, and I just watched it on a regular basis, like more than the Force Awakens and more than Last Jedi. You know, I want to put in Rogue One more than any of those movies. Now, Han Solo, or excuse me, Solo, a Star Wars story, which still I hate that title. That's probably the worst part of the thing, movie, in my opinion. The title. <laughs> uh, let's be real here. No, but but I I left Solo just with a huge smile on my face, being that was one of the best Star Wars experiences that I've ever had. And I mean that. Um, I, I mean, granted, I was watching with one of my best friends, Dave Valdez, a, you know, AKA at Father's Figures on Twitter and on Instagram. It's an amazing toy photographer. And, uh, you know, we've been best friends for a long time. And, and uh, we sat, we, the first Star Wars movie, movie we've ever seen together. And we sat down and we watched it. And it was just like, just a pure joy. I don't think I've ever at one moment was like, I never had a smile, not on my face. It was just, a, it, it honestly was a great ride. It felt like a great ride and I loved it. I loved the movie. I saw, I've seen it, you know, twice or excuse me, three times. And I got to tell you, it's, it just, it only gets better for me. There's, and there's so many things I could go on about it, which we'll get into here. And there's some, I think there's some criticisms here and there, but at the same time, 
considering what this movie was up against with the change of a director and everything, like it's it exceeded all my expectations. And I am just floored that so many critics criticize it as much as they did, to be honest. And I, I don't know, and I'm curious what you guys think, but for me, everything exceeded my expectations, and I love, love this movie. Yeah, for me, I was, of course, excited going into it just because it's a new Star Wars movie, but you've heard me on the past episodes of talking about the film, how I was just so excited to see these big moments we've heard about so so much just by watching the original trilogy and finally see them all play out. Han meeting Chewie, Han Lando meeting for the first time, Han winning the Falcon, seeing the Kessel run. So I just couldn't wait to see all that stuff on screen. I was really excited going into it. And as I was seeing it all unfold, watching it for the first time, I was just so happy that it delivered on pretty much all those things I was looking forward to seeing. And even though in certain aspects they did stuff differently than what I was expecting, but yet it still worked for me. Um, after thinking about it and kind of comparing how it was to maybe some EU stuff we've heard before and whatnot, and we'll get into those details when we talk about the movie. But overall, I was just really happy with what I was looking forward to the most. It delivered for me. But having said that, I think I can safely say that after seeing it for the first time, the movie as a whole probably exceeded my expectations because it already met them with meeting the criteria the stuff I was looking forward to. It nailed all those, I thought. But then you mix that in with the new characters we got in the movie I really thought were great and were great performances and mixed in with Han, Chewie, and Lando and the characters we were familiar with. But then you throw in the surprise we get at the end of the movie and it took it to another level <laughs> for me where it really exceeded expectations. So like you, Paul, after watching it for the first time, I just had a big smile on my face and just left with a good feeling. And it's kind of weird when you were talking about Rogue One because after Rogue One the first time, there was, like I said, reviewing that movie, there was a buzz in the theater after that whole Vader sequence. Like everyone was just in amazement of that. But afterwards, because um, I didn't immediately love Rogue One the first time I saw it, um, which I've documented before. I won't go into why, but I've come to love the movie a lot now. So, But with Solo... I left with kind of that same buzz that I had after Rogue One because of the surprise we got, but then just feeling really good about the movie as a whole when I was thinking about how it all played out. So, yeah, I can safely say I love the movie, too. I've seen it twice, and I'm itching to see it a third time. I'm sure by the time we're done talking about it while we record this episode, I'll be really, really anxious to see it again. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, well, so it sounds like of the three of us, I probably had maybe the lowest expectations going in. Um, but I think it's not that I had low expectations or expected the movie to be bad. I just wanted to keep my expectations safely in check. Um, especially with all the behind the scenes drama that we had heard about with the director change and everything. And I had faith in Ron Howard coming in to fix things. But um, I mean, the schedule felt like it might be a little rushed. And for a long time, we still didn't really know um, you know, exactly what was going on with the movie. I mean, it felt like with this one, there weren't as many sort of leaks and they didn't maybe start the advertising and stuff as soon as they did for the other movies. And so for a long time, it felt like we were kind of in the dark and nobody really knew, like, what is this even going to be? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like, it, I, I was definitely excited for it because it's Star Wars. And like you were saying, Tim, I was excited to see a lot of those big moments like Han meeting Chewie for the first time and him getting the Falcon for the first time and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
But just for the movie as a whole, I was like, I'm excited for it. It's Star Wars. I'm going to go see it. But I'm not going to let my expectations get through the roof. And maybe it's also just because I'm a little bit jaded at this point, like with both. Well, actually, I would say all three of the previous movies with The Force Awakens and Rogue One and The Last Jedi, I let my hype and my expectations just go through the roof. And I would say just because of that, not that any of those are bad movies, but I think each time it fell short just because my expectations were so high. Um, Especially with The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, Um, And then with Rogue One, I feel like I was trying to keep my expectations in check because I wasn't initially super excited for that movie. But then when the reviews and stuff started coming out, people were saying that it was like the best Star Wars movie since The Empire Strikes Back and that it was just this, you know, phenomenal, you know, war movie and the Vader was great and the action was awesome and all this kind of stuff. And so like the last week before Rogue One came out, I let my expectations for that one go through the roof and... I really love that movie, but again, just like with each of those, it was like I let my expectations get bigger than what the movie could actually deliver. So with Solo, I was like, I'm keeping it in check. I'm I'm just going to expect a good, fun Star Wars ride. And that's exactly what it was. Um, I wouldn't say it blew me away, um, but I had a lot of fun with it. I enjoyed it. I definitely liked the movie. Um, there were certain things that surpassed my expectations, especially the big surprise that we'll talk about later. Um, and there were other things that just kind of, you know, were maybe about what I expected or there weren't really any big things that were like huge disappointments, but there were certain things that I thought, you know, maybe weren't great or could have been done better. But overall, I thought it was a very solid movie and a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I was happy with it. I enjoyed it. I've also seen it twice and uh, planning to go see it again a third time this weekend because my wife Allison hasn't seen it yet. So um, I'm going to take her and her little sister um, and, uh, you know, I'm excited to see it again. So, um, but yeah, it was a good time. So let's go ahead and break this thing down. Um, we'll kind of just start going through the story and talk about what we, you know, liked or didn't like about certain parts and just kind of an- analyze it that way. Um so, of course, this starts off uh, at some point in between episodes three and four. Um, they don't really specify when, but... Yes, they do. It's te- it takes place... The main story is 10 years before New Hope. And then... The, so, it's thir- so, it starts off 13 years before New Hope, then 10 years when they, uh, when they do the fast forward. So, it's th- 13 and then 10. Okay. That's about but, what I figured. They just didn't say that yeah. in the actual movie. Um, no, they, they don't. They, they don't. Yeah, but... Um, so we see Han on Corellia as, you know, a, a young adult, um, you know, kind of on his own running scams and stuff. And the opening text, if you will, because it's not really a crawl, um, kind of sets up for us that even though the Empire is in charge, there's a lot of lawlessness in the galaxy and crime syndicates and that kind of thing. Um, and so Han is running a job for somebody who owns or runs one of these crime syndicates on Corellia named Lady Proxima, and he's trying to steal this hyperfuel that's super valuable because obviously hyperspace travel and the fuel that you use for that is going to be a valuable commodity when you're trying to traverse the galaxy, but that's something that's, you know, sort of highly prized to these uh, crime syndicates. And so the movie starts off with him having just stolen some of that, and he steals a speeder, and he's on the run from, you know, some criminals and some... uh, I think it might be no I think it's later when they uh he's out running the stormtrooper too. Um but he makes it yeah. back to his little enclave or whatever where he lives. We're introduced to uh Kira who's you know kind of his girlfriend I guess. Um and uh he 
you know, tells her that, I guess they don't really say exactly what he was trying to do, but it seems like he was trying to either um, steal or acquire like a bigger shipment of this stuff um, for Lady Proxima and things went south and he was able to get away with just one little container of it and he gives it to Kira for safekeeping and says like, hey, this is our ticket out of here. Um, you know, we can sell this for enough credits to get passage on the ship and get off Corellia. Um, and of course he ends up getting caught by Lady Proxima and things don't go as planned and um, we see our first of um, a lot of kind of interesting new alien designs um, in this movie and she's kind of yeah. a aquatic centipede thing um i don't know kind of an interesting design there but uh you know we see han kind of doing his first bit of um well i guess kind of talking his way out of things like uh you know he and chewie are arguing about in the force awakens where um he's kind of improvising on the spot he picks up a rock and says it's a thermal detonator <laughs> and it's like you know makes a, a clicking noise with his mouth and says that he just armed it and lady proxima's calling him out on it. she's like wait that's not a thermal detonator you just made a clicking noise with your mouth and uh kira's <laughs> like han please tell me this isn't your plan and he's like no this is my plan and he throws the rock through a window because i guess she's sensitive to sunlight and you know burrows back under the water and the two of them go on the run um get a ship and run to or you know get a, a speeder and they're off to the spaceport and getting chased by her guys and by stormtroopers and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then they get to the spaceport, which you see is, you know, under Imperial control. You see stormtroopers kind of just harassing people and, you know, checking people for ID and all this kind of stuff and just seeing um, what sort of regular uh, unhappy life, I guess, is like under Imperial rule for, you know, people in certain corners of the galaxy. Um, which, on an interesting side note, the Empire didn't play nearly as big of a role in this movie as I thought they would. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I thought this would thing. be more about Han, you know, kind of outrunning the Empire and stormtroopers and stuff. But really, it's just kind of this scene and then, um, well, one scene after that and then one towards the end of the movie where they're in the Falcon. Um, Which I got to say, you know, me and the Empire, <laughs> I always love it when they have a good, strong showing in a Star Wars movie or just Star Wars in general. And it, I got to say, it felt natural and right for the story. They were in it just enough, even though they weren't in it a lot. So I don't think it was a detriment, at least to my viewing of it that the empire wasn't a big play a big role in it but you got to see like you said Kyle in that sequence right there you know the authority they have and just the overbearing rule they have on certain planets they got that point across and then that's all it needed to until they show up later on the Kessel run so yeah I agree it wasn't a big showing but it felt right for the movie in the story and, they're trying to tell and I think also I love the, the empire's role in this movie I yeah. felt perfect and we'll get mm -hmm. to more more of why I think that in a little bit, but I got to really want to backtrack for one second. I loved Lady Proxima. Like I, I really felt like that's mm. an underrated part of this movie. I know she's only in it for like a two minutes, mm. but I really think that her, like the visual look, it felt retro star Wars, but it also felt new and different, but it just felt, it felt perfect. It reminded me of Han talking to Jabba the Hutt. Like, you know, like you would, you would think that like, uh, someone like would be intimidated by these these big alien creatures and you know for but for han he grew he's grown up with these grotesque creatures as like his superiors so he's not intimidated by anything like there's nothing that there's nothing that, that can intimidate him because he grew up like hustling for this you know giant creature worm thing and it's a great design i think it's a great great star wars design and i had i just had to say that i thought that 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 whole sequence with him throwing the rock 
and then going in and, and then the chase with and talking to Kira. I felt it was perfect like setup for exposition and foreshadowing and all that. I felt like it was done beautifully through that whole chase sequence. And I loved it. And I, and I and again, when you lead up to the Empire, like I just loved it's a great introduction to all the characters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I totally I loved like that first half or the first part so much. Yeah. Oh no, yeah, I agree. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Kyle. Okay. Well, I was just gonna say I was maybe a little indifferent to it. Um, I don't think I enjoyed that part as much as you did, Paul. Um, and I mean, I've heard some reviews and things where people say like, oh, that's one of the parts that feels clunky or, you know, too slow or like it was, you know, something that suffered from the reshoots or something like that. Um, and I don't think it was bad necessarily. And I don't necessarily agree with all those criticisms of it, but it was one of a few parts in this movie where like, I was definitely interested in the characters, but like the, the story going on just like, didn't. Like, it's not that I didn't care, but it just didn't grab me the way that Star Wars stories normally do, Um, which is okay because that was, in a way, this is kind of what I expected from some of these, uh, you know, Star Wars story films where they're doing spinoffs and stuff. I mean, this is basically just kind of a fun, like, heist adventure movie that happens to be in space with Star Wars characters. Um, There's nothing that's like impacting the fate of the galaxy here. Um, which again is nice that like not every movie has to have that sort of gravitas to it. Um, and just sort of that epic weight to the story. But at the same time, it felt like it was missing that a little bit just for a star Wars movie. Like I felt like I didn't have as much reason to care just about the plot and the, the events in some of the thing. And so I was like, okay, like he's getting his fuel for this lady Proxima worm lady. And like, when do we get to Chewie and the Falcon? You know, um, that was <laughs> wow. the stuff that I was really interested in. But again, wow. like it was it was fun. I didn't hate it. Like I liked it. I just didn't love it. But there were de- and I'm not talking about the movie as a whole. I'm talking about like this part specifically. So no, um, I got you. I got you. But yeah. So so again, like not that I didn't like that or anything. It just it was it was all right. That wasn't that didn't like completely stick the landing for me. Are you and really quickly? I have a question for you, Kyle. Are you a big creature alien guy yourself? Um, it depends. I know I'm definitely okay. not as big a fan of Jabba the Hutt as you are. Um, See, well, right, right. And but I I like some of them, but it's just, I mean, just having like a creature like Jabba or like Lady Proxima on screen that that in itself is not enough to get me like oh super interested. Um. It's all about sort of like how they serve the story and then like what they're there to do. And I guess I'm not so much into the big creatures that just kind of sit there and like are crime bosses and, you know, are there just to kind of look intimidating. Like I'd rather see them like do something. Um, Like when you say am I a a big creature guy, I don't know if you were on the episode where we talked about Rebels and I said um, that the Loath Wolves in Rebels are probably my favorite creatures in all of Star Wars because of the way that they serve the story in the episodes that they're in and their connection to the force and sort of building on the mythology and all that kind of stuff, rather than just being a creature that's just there to look interesting or look intimidating and kind of give somebody orders or whatever. So, um, yeah, so I guess to answer that question, the, the creatures that are like gangsters, um, are maybe not the most interesting to me. Um, okay. And also, I mean, I'm a, I'm, a Jedi and force guy for sure. Um, so I love okay. getting to see this other side of the star Wars universe and see sort of the criminal underworld and see this 
you know, the the side of the galaxy that is that Han is living in on a daily basis before he runs into Luke and Obi-Wan in the cantina. Um, like, I definitely enjoy getting to see that other aspect of things. It's just not my favorite part of it. Um, but I'm definitely glad that we got to sort of see and experience all the new things that are in here and just sort of get that sort of seedy criminal underbelly uh, part of the galaxy fleshed out and get to see that in a movie. It's just not going to be my favorite movie. Yeah, probably more in line to your reaction on this one, Paul, because I would have called myself a big creature guy as well, but there is something about Lady Proxima when she appears that, like I said, she's so uniquely designed for a Star Wars character as someone who's like, you know, as a not a prominent role, but, you know, as someone in the story in Han's early life as a prominent figure to look that way. So when I first saw it, I was taken aback by, you know, they went that route. But at the same time, I loved it because it is something different than we've seen before in a Star Wars creature. And that's kind of the stuff I hope to see in these Star Wars uh, standalone films, getting some different stuff but at the same time still has a Star Wars feel to it, which I thought Lady Proxima did have that feel. Because I remember we saw a shot in one of the behind-the-scenes video or the TV spot that they're, when they're bringing Han up to where she resides in. Like, in the TV spot, they just show and bring Han up and you see this pool of water. And a big, like, you see the back of her come up. And I just thought, oh, they're going to intimidate him by like feeding him to this monster or whatnot. But when I found out as I saw the movie that, no, this is the crime boss. This is the leader, and she can talk. <laughs> it was... Took me back for a second, but I, at the same time, I really dug it. So, yeah, I thought she was a great addition to it. But at the same time, too, that whole opening sequence, um, I just like the backstory it created for Han. I really like the idea that he came from, you know, he started off in like a group of young runaways. And even in the art book, they kind of compare it to Oliver Twist and being the hardcore Batman fan I am. It reminded me of that Batman the Animated Series episode, The Underdwellers, where these bands of little kids or live in the sewer and they go out and steal from of the citizens of Gotham and they go back into the lair. So it kind of had that feel to me as well. But I just like that's the backstory of where Han comes from. And just it, you can see that fitting into his past and where, how it shapes him to be who he is and get as, as we see him as a smuggler in the original trilogy. So just overall in general, that backstory it created for Han, I did like that that's where he came from, from like a band of young kids just, you know, who had nobody but were being used by this criminal syndicate to their own means. Yeah. But before we move on a little further from the actual beginning, I wanted to ask you guys this real quick. What did you think of the actual intro of it where after a long time ago in a galaxy oh. far, far away, we got that little opening, like you said, not a crawl, but the opening text setting up where the story picks up. Because I was actually expecting it to be just like Rogue One. Yeah, me too. right into a scene. And I kind of hope Actually, this is the standard they do because it is something about a Star Wars movie opening up with a little, you know, exposition and information setting up what you're about to see. And I thought for a Star Wars story, it was cool to have it be in the same font as a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So I did like how it began with that. And then quickly we get the solo title. So how do you guys think about that, how it started? Yeah, I like that a lot, too. Um, I thought it was definitely just did an effective job at like setting up sort of um well setting the stage i guess for like where the story takes place and just kind of talking about what's going on gives you just a little bit of a glimpse of the world that we're going to be introduced to um han living in you know before we actually see him um and it was kind of like and it was like giving you some of the information that you would have seen in an opening crawl just 
without i mean i don't think it was as much text as you would have in a crawl you know it doesn't take as long with the the grand opening music and stuff like that and so i think for um yeah for one of the spinoff films like this i think it was a perfect way to kind of strike that balance of doing something different but also still kind of giving you that exposition to set things up um so yeah i liked it a lot i don't know that i necessarily needed that for rogue one and it's different too right because with rogue one Mm -hmm. there's such a so much of a bigger time jump um yeah and the um the introduction for solo like it it really does kind of just pertain to like where we see han at the beginning of the film but then that still kind of applies to him when it jumps to like three years later um whereas with rogue one it's really like kind of a prologue that you're seeing before the main movie starts so it's almost like we would have needed that text in that time period um or you know in between like during the the time jump almost um but yeah for for this movie i think it served its purpose you know beautifully and um definitely something i think they could work with in future movies too depending on sort of where they're set and what the story is they're trying to tell but yeah i liked it a lot i thought it was effective i i loved loved that tim and i i thought it was really really cool because I was like you, I thought I was gonna be like Rogue One, just go right into it, which I I love that too. I thought they handled both of it, like both films handled without the main crawl perfectly. And I am with you, Tim. I am kind of into the whole continuing the blue lines because it literally was the crawl. It even had the ellipses, you know, and it had the you know because I the third time I really noticed it even more. They highlighted like the main characters and like the the factions. So like mm-hmm. Lady Proxima is all capitalized and the White Worms is capitalized and just it it feels like a crawl, but it's not the crawl. It's perfect. Yeah. And I I want to know who whose idea it was to do that because it was brilliant. And as far as the opening title sequence. I get kind of goosebumps. The music I think is perfect. It's, and I'm not sure if that, I want to know, and maybe you guys can help me out with this because I know John Williams wrote some of the motifs for these characters. And because, you know, obviously these are people or these are characters tied to John Williams and the themes that he created in the original trilogy. My, my understanding is that John Powell wrote this, but that opening sequence is so brilliant. And, and as far as like the title card and I thought it was, you know, I liked Rogue Ones, but I feel like Solo's, a, a solo film is the best sta- of the standalone so far of, between the two. I, I think that they're how the music and, and the way they bring it is like just perfect. I thought it was really well done. So wait, are you, when call, you say you like it better than Rogue One, are you talking about the movie as a whole or just the, that intro scene? Just that intro. Well, we'll get into that in a little bit. But like I'd say the 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 main the title sequence, like the Rogue One, the music title versus the solo and a music title, like when they, they're showing you the title of the film with like the like the theme going underneath it. I feel the solo theme is hands down better with the with the title card than the Rogue Ones. I think it's brilliant. I it it gives me goosebumps. It feels like Star Wars to me. Like Rogue One kind of took me out. Like I I love the Rogue One score, but that's probably that's that title card sequence is probably my least favorite of the whole movie. But like with Solo, that title card, it gets me in the mood for Star Wars. I'm like the other day I was um organizing my Canon shelf and I put on the soundtrack, and I'm not a soundtrack guy, but I, I was, you know, on a Han Solo buzz. I've always Han Solo books. I'm organizing. I listened to it, and that just the music is great overall. But yeah. that title, that title card though, is just mwah, perfect, in my opinion. No, yeah, it's cool. Like, because it's weird when I say this because we were talking about Rogue One and how that started. It was kind of oh, 
instead of getting like an opening crawl, we're seeing the opening crawl in that prologue we got with Young Jin. And it worked good for that. But at the same time, I'm going to be real nitpicky, <laughs> like total fanboy nitpick here. But there's a part of me that wants, even though these are standalone films and they do their own thing, I would like the standalone films to have their kind of own like symmetry that they follow or like they all have the same type of opening and intro. So I was kind of now that we got the opening, uh, not, I want to say opening crawl, but it's not a crawl, but the opening text for Solo as like, oh, that's perfect for these standalone films. Kind of want that for Rogue One now <laughs> because I want all these Star Wars story films to have this like structure that they follow, even though the whole point of them is to do their own thing. So, like I said, it's my own real nitpicky thing about it, but yeah, I, I agree for the most part. Where I like how this one began, and we got the title card of Solo Star Wars Story real quick, too. Like, we didn't even get any scenes really or dialogue before the title card came out. We just saw Han and the Speeder, him driving through the streets of Corellia camera pans up and we get the title solo a star wars story but i agree the music on that was really really cool so just overall in general i thought it started out really nicely yeah for sure um so getting back to where we're at in the story um so you got han and kira they're on the run from uh lady proxima's you know goons and whatever um they get to the spaceport oh and we were talking about the empire and being able to see their influence and stuff like that um one thing i like too here is just being able to see sort of the day-to-day of like some of the regular uh imperial officers and whatnot yeah I mean, we always see the ones that are connected to vader and the emperor and stuff but i mean here you see what an imperial officer running a spaceport is like um and they're not always as strict and by the book as you would think i mean han is able to enlist like really quickly without them doing, you know, a background mm-hmm. check or, uh, 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 you know, skills check on his piloting skills or anything like that before they just let him, you know, enlist into the Navy. Um, Which, by the way, too, I really like the propaganda video they showed to mm-hmm. got, got, that got Han's attention and the music they played, which was the variation of the Imperial March, but I'm pretty sure it was the same one they used for the Rebels episode, Empire Day, when they were having that parade. It sounded really similar. I yeah, wouldn't be surprised. If, if it was the same, I mean, that's cool that they decided to use it. But I just like how the Imperial March gets used in the Imperial propaganda to try to get recruits. So that was a little nice little touch they had in there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when they first so when they first get there, uh, Han and Kira go to I guess the the customs officer or whatever that's like letting people through to board this transport or something, um, and like the the mercenaries and stuff are kind of hot on their heels. And so they're trying to blend into the crowd and, you know, kind of hurry through this line and they get up there and they bribe the lady with the, uh, this fuel that they've got. Um, and she's like, you know, let me see your identification. And Han's like, yeah, funny thing. We actually don't have identification, but we do have this and you know, it's worth 800 credits or something. And it's all yours. If you just let us through and, um, you know, basically, so they, they bribe her, she lets them through, but then she immediately, like, calls security, and the place gets locked down, and Han and Kira get separated, and Kira gets captured and pulled back by Lady Proxima's guys, um, and Han is, you know, on the other side of the gate, and he's, like, you know, trying to get back to her, and he says, I'll, you know, I'll come back for you, I'll come back for you, um, and so now he's on his own, and uh, yeah, like you said, Tim, that's when he sees that propaganda video and decides to enlist with the Empire, and it's kind of like just his last ditch effort option like that's just his quickest way mm-hmm. out of there because obviously now everybody's on the on the lookout for him um because that officer that they bribed then kind of stabs them in the back and she's like oh we still got one more guy on the loose like he's over here somewhere um 
So before anybody can realize who he is, Han just kind of, you know, like I said, takes the quickest option out, which is to enlist in the Empire and knows that he'll be able to get off world and travel the galaxy. Um, and so he goes up to the guy and says, uh, you know, he's like, what's your name? And he says, Han. And he's like, what's your last name? Who are your people? And Han says, I don't have any people. I'm by myself. And the guy's like, hmm, okay, Han Solo. Um, so it was kind of cool to see that, like, because if you think about it, like, the name Han Solo makes sense when it's introduced in the original Star Wars that's kind of like, like, you can tell it's one of those kind of pulpy, like, fictional names where it's like, oh, this guy's named Solo because he's off on his own. Um, but when you think about <laughs> it, it's like, is would that be anybody's actual real last name? Like, it could be, but, you know, now we know this was kind of a, uh, not really a title, but, you know, just kind of a name that was given to him and it just stuck and he went with it. Um so, yeah, I don't know. That was one of the, the few nitpicks I had. I don't know just how the Imperial guys said it or the situation. It just didn't work the way I thought it was going to be. I just felt it was unnecessary. But at the same time, I can kind of see what you mean about, you know, that type of name being given and not being your birth family name. But at the same time, like, you really need to, because it felt a little eye-winky to me when the, the Imperial mm-hmm. officers said, like, Solo turns to the kind of gives a wink or something. But... Yeah, I don't know. That's like one of the few things that really didn't like. I guess it's not a big moment, but one of the, like the things that we learned in the movie that didn't really work for me when I first saw it, and probably still not. It's, it's one of the things that's still like oh, I could live with it, but it's not my favorite. You know what's funny is I think that that line or that that part of the movie is one of the most d- divisive of the entire film, if that makes any sense. Um, I feel like there's not a, you know I feel like everyone's down the middle on that. Like either you love it or you hate it. And I'm one of those people that if you would have told me going into it, if you would have told me three years ago that's how Solo got his name, I'd be like, that's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but I, because of what's happening in the sequel trilogy with Ray, I feel like it's almost, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, mm. I, I almost kind of made me think, she, this is emulating Ray way more than I realized. Like, like, I'm starting to realize that literally Luke. Or excuse me, um, Ray is literally all three of the original trilogy characters like molded into one. It almost feels like, and but in fact, I would say she has a lot more in common with, with Han, obviously, than than most people now, especially yeah. after watching this movie. And I don't want to just turn into like episode nine speculation, but I'll be honest, I think this opens up the door for Ray to take on someone else's last name through this movie. And I'm, I'm not saying they did it to set that up, but I think this opens the door because someone like Han, is that's not his real name. That's what he goes by. And he takes it at a young age, so almost close in age to what uh, Ray is. So, you know, I don't think she'll, I think it'll be Skywalker, but that's a whole other conversation. But, <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is at least it opens up a door that you could go that direction. And, and, and obviously, and on, excuse me, and honestly, because of that, it ma- it makes sense, like in the story at idea. I mean, it's weird that the guy picks solo, but it makes sense that he's like, okay, you know, obviously Han is ashamed of what he came from, so he doesn't want to identify himself with what his past was. So the guy makes him his own last name, and he goes on from it. I think th- I think that's brilliant. So um, looking back on it, like I'm like, huh, like I I know I didn't think I'd like that either. Like if he would have asked me a couple years ago, but now I'm like, no. 
That makes sense. And it makes sense in the whole orphan idea. Again, and honestly, I think Ray's story has kind of helped me accept that. Because I now I think being an orphan is now part of the Star Wars, you know, we you know, about family. But Lars now there's now a lot about being, you know, abandoned by your family and and you know, with with Ray and Han now. So there's there's cool new themes being introduced in the in the new Disney era of Star Wars. And I think that's one of them. And it's it's just, it's a good thing of being being able to be independent and finding your own people because all honestly there's also that line later on in the movie where you know Han says he's either, he said either tribe or family, and you know mm-hmm. and then he then I think Rio said what's the difference, yeah. and I love that I was like okay mm-hmm. like they're setting up the idea that family is not blood related which I you know. It's it's a it's a it's about you know who you identify with and so that was really interesting and I think that solo line only cemented it for me. Well, Paul, I didn't think about that when I was watching it or since, but if that does pave the way for something like that to happen with Ray, I'll be all for it and I'll take back what I said. <laughs> if it paves the way for that, it'll be fine because you make some great points there about how it sets certain things up about you know the identities of some of our main characters and what you know searching for an identity and who they are. So some good points that you brought up there. So maybe I'll come to warm up to it later on if that does happen, (laughs) if it does set up some bigger stuff. But if it's just kind of this one and done thing where that's where Han got his name, that's it, and a little eye wink to the camera, that's where it happened, then maybe I won't. But (laughs) we'll see where it leads. But you brought up some interesting points for me to think about where how it could set up some cool stuff. So I guess we'll see. Yeah, well, for me, though, like, I don't think this is going to have, like, big far-reaching implications like you're talking about i mean i like some of the stuff you're saying about just sort of the themes of of family and sort of choosing your own group or whatnot especially in this movie like i you made a good point that i didn't really catch on to which is that um you know and han says he doesn't have a people or whatever he doesn't have a last name well later in the movie like he and lando were talking about their parents um, and he talks about how his dad used to build ships like the Millennium Falcon and then, you know, how he's not really close to his mother or whatever. Um, so it's like he obviously knows that he has a family out there somewhere or at least did at some point. Um, and so I'm sure he has a last name that he was given at some point and probably knows what it is. But just, you know, at this point, he is just striking out on his own. He's like, look, I don't have anybody like I don't have a name that I want to be you know, identified with, like, I'm just Han, like, it's just me. Um, and he's like, all right, well, you're Han Solo. And I, I like, like, I liked that, that scene a lot. Um, but it wasn't like, oh man, that was so cool. It was just like, oh, all right, that's neat. It's a, you know, just little detail about his backstory that we didn't know before. And I think it's a, a cool addition to the character without changing too much. Um, and I like it's weird because I feel like that's kind of a blessing and a curse for this movie is that it it kind of plays it safe in a sense and doesn't introduce too many like radical new things in the Han's backstory and, you know, have him do things or um, add things about his character where you're like, whoa, I never knew that Han was from this place or did this one thing. Um which is like, again, kind of a detriment because the movie at times feels like it's just playing it safe and kind of uh, just sort of paint by numbers like Star Wars Adventure. But at the same time, I appreciate that because I wouldn't want them to shake up his backstory too much or make it feel like Han was already like a really important and established character in the Star Wars universe because I think his appeal in the original trilogy is that he's just an ordinary guy, right? Like, 
Han mm. and or uh, Luke and Obi Wan when they go to the cantina, they're not seeking out Han because he's this legendary pilot or because he's some great hero that they want to have help them on their journey. Like they're just looking for a pilot, and they happen to run into a guy with a fast ship, and like he's just in it for the money, and you know just sees them as another job. So. I'm glad that they didn't turn Han into like this, you know, big galactic hero or somebody with like a really interesting backstory. So little tidbits like this where it's like, oh, he just randomly got his name from an Imperial officer who, you know, made it up on the spot while he was enlisting him into the Imperial Navy. It's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, cool. They're adding a little detail to his backstory that we didn't know before, but it's nothing like earth shattering. Um, So I thought it was a cool little touch. Yeah, I, you guys are making some good points, but like I said, maybe it'll get better for me when I let's say see it more times. That I, it, yeah, just comes to accept that that's how it is. <laughs> maybe it'll and, be a little better. And and just and I'm not saying it's going to have these implications either. I want to make that very clear. I'm saying oh it, no, I know, but it opens a door is what I'm saying. It makes yeah, it a possibility. It's something mm-hmm. really cool to think about. I'll say that for sure. Yeah. Um, well, this is the point where the movie jumps forward three years, um, and we see Han. He's in the Empire now. Um, within these three years, like we see when he enlisted, he said he wanted to be a pilot and he, he wanted to be the best pilot in the galaxy and he wanted to, you know, travel the stars. And, um, so he enlisted into like the Imperial Navy to be a a TIE pilot, basically. Um, three years later, he's a grunt on the battlefield and says that he's been (laughs) kicked out of the flight Academy for, you know, being too, uh, free spirited or, you know, having a mind of his own. Um, but we see him on, I don't, do they ever name the planet that they're on? It's, it's Mimbam. Mimbam, right? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, right. That's Mim-Bam. right. Yeah, they don't say it in the movie, but I remember, yeah, I totally forgot. But Tim, I remember us talking about that back on some previous episode, and I said that was called out in Clone Wars, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we see the Imperial troops, they're slugging it out in this big battle. Um, and this was actually a really cool scene. Like, even though we never really see who they're fighting, and it's not like a super detailed battle scene, just seeing um, sort of being down on the ground in a, a nitty gritty, you know, war scene like from the empire's perspective mm-hmm. um was really cool and han wasn't yeah. you know a stormtrooper necessarily but had on armor that was more almost kind of like a, a atst driver or something like that where he's got like the armored chest plate and then the helmet that like still has the face open so you can see the faces of all the characters yeah he did um, have the face mask but he takes it off right away he's like no han leave it on for a little bit because <laughs> trooper helmet they look pretty cool <laughs> yeah no they and we did get to see some cool new trooper outfits and stuff like that in this movie um, but yeah, this was a cool, just sort of hectic, you know, war scene where, um, the Imperial troops are kind of, um, you know, they're trying to push forward and hit this objective or whatever, but they're getting blasted left and right. And like the captain who's in charge and giving orders is like, all right, forward and immediately gets like blown up. And, um, this is where we're introduced to, uh, the character of Tobias Beckett, who, um, at first seems to be, you know, an Imperial captain. And it's like, all right, well, chain of command falls to you. And he starts giving orders and, um, yeah, they're able to sort of at least make it to their next objective or make it out of this next phase of the battle or whatever. Um, but Han quickly realizes that this squad of soldiers that he's kind of fallen in with um, are not really Imperials and that they're, uh, you know, con artists there that have kind of just, you know, snuck in with the Imperial military and they're here to pull a job. Um, and at this point, he's already getting you know, sort of jaded with the empire. He's like, this is not what I signed up for. When he realizes what these guys are up to, he's like, Hey, I can tell like you're here to steal something. Uh, you know, you're, you're criminals here to pull off a job. You're not with the empire and I want in. Um, 
And you can tell Beckett is kind of considering it, and he's got his partner Val there with him, and she's like, no, nah, we don't need this kid. Um, and then to try to persuade him, Han's like, well, you know, if you're not interested in me, then I'm sure these Imperials will be very interested in you, because he's kind of sniffed them out and realized, you know, that they're criminals. He's like, I could just turn you in. But since Beckett's wearing a captain's uniform, he's like, oh, haha, really? You think you can show me up like that? And he calls over the lieutenant or whatever. He's like, um, you know, hey, I'm the ranking officer. This guy's a deserter. Throw him in the brig. Um, <laughs> and Han's own plan, you know, backfires on him. They drag him away and they're like, oh, well, let's feed him to the beast. Um, so they toss him into this cage, uh, you know, underground. Well, before we get to that part, did you guys have anything you wanted to add just about the whole, uh, the, Imper the, the scene with him joining the Empire and just being... Uh, you know, on the front lines of that battle and then getting to meet um, Beckett and his crew for the first time. Yeah, this is one of those, you know, instances where I talk about where the Empire doesn't have a big show in this movie, but when it, there are there, it's really cool. Like you said, I just love being dropped immediately into a battlefield. <laughs> like It's a skirmish where you're seeing, you know, walkers being dropped down, chaos, explosions going around everywhere you're seeing, you know, what it's like on the front lines from the Imperial perspective. And I thought that was pretty cool. And just seeing... I always love it when we see soldiers in like trenches and this chaos all around them, not knowing what to do. So to get that in this movie too, with Han and being on the Imperial side, I thought was really neat. And then just seeing afterwards that whole after the battle was done, and you just see troops just you know walking around in those trenches and just the casual life of Imperial soldiers and stormtroopers. We haven't seen that before in a Star Wars movie because it's mainly just see that to you know, the good guys, the either Resistance or the Rebels. So to see that you know for what it's like when they're not fighting in a battle, but they're, you know, they're ready for it from the Imperial perspective. I thought was really cool. And again, more cool trooper designs. Like you said, the mud troopers, um, even though Rio is the only one we really got to see in the mud trooper outfit, um, as he was trying to disguise the species that he was, but I, I love that mass design. So that was really cool. And then seeing those stormtroopers, uh, regular stormtrooper armors, but then they had like a little cloth or a cape. Uh, cause when I saw the toys of those, it was like, Oh, man, I don't know. It looks like they're just trying to rip off Captain Phasma there, but it didn't have that effect what I saw in the movie. You could see why. Like, it wasn't a big cape like Phasma. It was just kind of like a, a unique visual look for this movie and for these troopers for the environment that they were in. So, yeah, this was another cool part for the, the Empire side of things that we haven't seen too much before in a Star Wars movie that I really liked. Yeah, this is Mimban, which, by the way, is not just a Clone Wars reference, and I'm and I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast has heard this a million times. But just in case, <laughs> one person that hasn't, this is actually the the first EU planet, if you will. Is this is this was the planet that Luke and Leia traveled to in in uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which is pretty much a, a George oh. Lucas story um, that was developed as a potential sequel to Star Wars, if in fact it was. Um, and if it wasn't going to be successful, they wanted to have an, you know, a, a, something that they could uh, film would be easy. They could just film on location that was, you know, that's like a foresty, muddy forest areas, essentially. And that's what it, Minban is. So Minban is the, the canon, canon, canonization of visually seeing Minban, which is really cool. I think that's a really cool thing. Um, and I have to say this and I have the right to change my mind later, people. But <laughs> at, with with this this whole time on this planet, which we'll get into the other part of this, uh, we haven't got there yet. But if you combine this and the other part, this is probably right now my favorite part of the movie. I just love the stuff on Minban. I don't know why. Like it's like you know, like for me, I love the part in I love Jetta on on Rogue One. Me too. I, I, I don't know. Everyone hates on it. I love it. Like I think it's my favorite part. 
Is it the best part? Maybe not, but I just I love the Jetta stuff. So the Mimban stuff, I just think I just think there's great character moments. There's you know, I love the introduction of all the characters, Val, Beckett, and Rio. Um, I love the trooper designs. I love again, I love the idea of the of the Emperor and the Empire being like they're 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 a part of the story, but they're not the main part of the story. Mm-hmm. They're just like you know they're they're just kind of they're just there, and I love that. And I love Beckett's introduction. Um, I just love the interactions and everything. I love I love Han. It, there's something about the Min Band sequences. Again, when we get to the later parts, that definitely helps. It just it just makes it feel like just Star Wars to me, but it's just different. I don't know. I I love the Min Band stuff. I think it's great. Um, I love the trooper designs. This that I feel is it just me or do the sets on this movie and the and locations are just like just perfect? I just love it. Looks grimy and real, but it looks di- it's different. Am I making any sense? No, I mm-hmm. I feel you on that. And okay, so yeah, I, I love the Min Man stuff. I I think it's great. And uh, yeah, so we can move on to the next part. I'll just say real quick too. Another thing I'm really happy they did is that Han part of his history that he was with the Empire. Because yeah. it was something that's we've kind of always heard about, knew about through EU stories and all that. So I'm glad it's official canon now. But l- looking through the art book, and I'm barely into it. I'm just like into a few pages. But they were considering an idea to where Han wasn't part of the Empire. And he like joined like a band of freedom fighters. And that's where him and Chewie met. So they were considering different story possibilities. But I'm just so glad that they stuck with the you know story that we kind of knew about already. Where Han's origins kind of came from a little bit of time in the Imperial Academy and it was only three years, but that's enough for me. I'm just glad that it is officially part of his story now. Cause I just think that's a cool little aspect to have to Han's past that um, he knows about certain things that the empire does. And like he says, in the empire strikes back about, you know, when they dump their garbage following Imperial procedure, he would know all about that for spending time uh, with the empire. So I'm definitely glad they stuck with that for part of his story in the movie. Yeah. Same here. It was, yeah, it was one of those things that was cool to see just because like you said, we'd heard about it so much through the EU and stuff and just kind of referenced here and there um, and to know that that's official canon now um, and just to, you know, just sort of have that be part of his backstory. That was really cool to uh, sort of finally get that cemented. Um, And then the next part of his backstory that was really cool to see finally get fleshed out on screen was the introduction (laughs) of our favorite co-pilot Chewbacca, um, who was first introduced as just the beast. You know, the, uh, they hand Han over to these Imperial guys and they're like, Oh, let's throw him to the beast. And they toss him in this big cage. That's, you know, just a giant hole in the ground with a grate over it. Um, And uh, you know, Han's chained up and you see the chains start to get pulled on. And this, you know, monster is coming out of the, uh, the dark shadows of this thing and i mean i don't know about you guys but at this point i was like this is where chewie's getting introduced right like i didn't think this was gonna yeah. be like a rancor <laughs> or something like that but um yeah these imperial guys are so sure that like this thing's gonna come out and eat him and they're making it sound like it's all scary and stuff and sure enough who else comes out but chewbacca all muddy and dirty and chained up and um you know obviously being a slave of the empire who's being like tortured and stuff and um this guy the trooper who throws him in there is like oh this should be good i haven't fed him in three days um so chewie's not even being kept as like slave labor by the empire but essentially just sort of their um you know their resident pet that they use for like torturing people and stuff um but uh you know he starts attacking han and pretty soon we learn that han knows how to speak wookie 
um, <laughs> which was probably one of my favorite parts of the movie, just as a fun little surprise in there. Um, Chewie's like got him dangling upside down by his foot and Han starts growling at him and they put subtitles up there as he's, uh, you know, communing, communicating with him. And what is it like Shrewook or something that's the Wookiee language? Um, did they and, did they say actually say that? Because I don't remember. Yeah, I don't that. remember. No, yeah. they don't say it in the movie. I'm just talking about like in in the EU or whatever you know in the books. Like what they say the the name of the Wookiee languages. Mm. I think it's like Shiri Wook or something like that. But um, yeah, so Han starts communicating with him in in you know very broken Wookiee speak. Um, he's like you know me have planned to get out of here. You know we make big game of pretend and you know, Han's like chained to this big pole. And so he has Chewie pretend like he's trying to hit Han and Han's like ducking out of the way. And Chewie's just punching this pole until it breaks free from the ceiling. Um, and I thought it was funny, like to get it to finally break free, Han calls him, a. um, he's like, what are you afraid to come at me? You big mangy Kashiki and moof milker. Um, (laughs) and Chewie just tackles him into the pole and the whole thing collapses and the troopers fall down. And then, uh, you know, Han and Chewie escape through the, um, you know, the now collapsed, uh, great and everything. Um, so I thought this was a really fun and effective way to introduce, uh, the two of them together for the first time. And it's obviously maybe not what you would expect. Like they didn't start out, you know, just like, Oh, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Han. I'm Chewie. Let's be friends. It's like, no, they started as adversaries that had to uh, work together to escape a sticky situation that they were in. And then they're kind of just, you know, in it together from that point on. Um, so I thought it was cool just the introduction of Chewie for the first time and then, um, you know, seeing Han speak Wookiee and just seeing them work together to get out of that. Um, and then, of course, as they, they escape and they see Beckett and his crew taken off in the big Imperial cargo hauler that they came to steal. Um, and Beckett's like, oh, fine, we'll, you know, we'll go back and rescue him. Oh, and uh, Rio, who's the little four-armed alien pirate, uh, pilot guy played by John Favreau. Um, has a couple of funny lines in there where he's like, have you ever, he's like, I'm just saying we should go back for the Wookiee because, you know, you'll never get a better night's sleep in your life than curled <laughs> up in a Wookiee's lap. Um, so, you know, had some fun little moments there. But, um, yeah, so they go back, they rescue Han and Chewie, and they're off and on their way. But, um, yeah, what would you guys think of that scene with uh, the Chewbacca introduction? Well, I have to say, uh, do you, did you guys think that when he said feed him to the beast, did you automatically think Chewie? Because I didn't. I'm like, oh, what, what this is going to be. And then I, then as, oh, wait, wait a minute. Oh, it's going to be Chewy. I, I didn't think that automatically. Did you guys think automatically Chewy? Yeah, I kind of had a, I kind of knew when they said that. It's about time for Chewy to be introduced here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, same here. I, I had a, I mean, it was at least a hunch. Like when he said, throw him to the beast, I immediately mm-hmm. was like, well, is that Chewy? And then I was like, well, it could be some other kind of beast. But then, yeah, like you were saying, Tim, I was like, it's about time for Chewy to show up anyways. Like I like this would be a perfect time for them to introduce him. So I don't think they're going to like have him fight some other kind of monster and then introduce Chewy later. So, um, yeah, I was like, yeah, that's probably what's going on here. Yeah. So I, I love again, this this is a big reason why I love Minban. I think. The introduction of Han meeting Chewie is just brilliant. Like I, I couldn't have thought of it any better, and I, I, I would never have thought to do it this way. And I love how you know it's it's through him speaking Wookie 
or tree walk or whatever you want to call it <laughs> is what you know gets Chewie to kind of figure out what's going on. And man, I don't know about you guys, but I laugh my butt off when they're running opposite directions and he's like and Chewie's dragging Han yeah. with them. Like seriously, <laughs> like I laugh out loud every single time. I've seen it movie movie three times. It's brilliant. Like it's one of the main strengths of this movie, and you have to make it a strength, is their relationship. That totally. has to work. If mm-hmm. you, if it doesn't work, then you don't. The movie won't work at all. And I think that's what. So I think you know. Again, an underselling point of this is that the fact that Han and Chewie, you buy what makes them. And and one of the things that I loved about it is there's no life debt. Like, and I kept waiting for it. And and yeah. I thought initially that's what was going to happen. No, no, no. They just are a good team. And they and they grew to kind of like be and hang out together. I love Han's like, get get away from me. I don't want to, I want you to, you know, be here or whatever. So I don't know. It was, it was interesting. I love that I, that wasn't there. And I kept waiting for it. But I, I thought initially if it was, I thought to myself, if they didn't initially put it in the movie, like right out, right away, then that probably won't be in there. And so and I, it ended up being right. But I just love the, the the dynamic. I love the fact of how how uh, how Chewie and Han were able to interact and, and do that from the start. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's funny you bring up the life debt because I was waiting for it for it to be mentioned too. And at the same time, after I first saw it, I got to say that was one of my disappointments. I was you know hoping that they would bring in the life debt in there because it's something again going back to past Star Wars knowledge before we got the movie about their history. And that life that was such a big part of it, and that's why you know Chewie sticks around with Han for so long. But uh, having said that, that scene that played out where they first met was perfect. I mean, it subverted my expectations. I wasn't expecting it to go that way, but like you said, Paul, how they did it was brilliant because I was just expecting. You know, we got Han in the Empire. He's Chewie's a slave, so he's gonna help free Chewie, and you know that's gonna establish the life debt. But how they did it here, I thought work better and you guys explain why that scene was so much fun to see how they first met when they were fighting but what i like about it so much too is that it just builds their relationship even more than what we than what we're used to and what we've come to know from them in the movies we've seen them so far because uh, like you were saying with the life debt and i've come to appreciate now that the life debt wasn't brought up in there and how it's actually i think more of a positive that it's not and how it builds their relationship because Chewie is not just sticking with Han because he has to, because I always thought he would at the beginning because he has to, but then they, you know, come to, they get closer, become good friends. And, you know, as we've seen them in the original trilogy, but the fact that it's kind of coming from a mutual respect for each other, I think works better for the relationship. And now that we have this backstory, the idea that Han didn't rescue Chewie and Chewie didn't rescue Han, but they helped each other to get out of their dire situation of being captured by the empire and escaping together. They each helped each other. Han had the plan and Chewie was able to get him out of the cave they were in and get through the the battle zone where the Empire was at. So they each helped each other. And I think that works better from a story standpoint now of how their relationship was formed and how they first met. It just enriches it for me now, knowing that this is how they first met. And because they were able to help each other out, that established that early bond that only grows over the course of this movie. So yeah, it was great. Just like it was just a fun sequence, but then what it means in the grander scheme of things in their history and for these two characters, iconic characters of Han Solo and Chewbacca, like I said, it just enriches it for me more. And that's 
one of the things, like I said at the beginning, that I was hoping this movie would do for me, and it really nailed that for Han and Chewie, especially in this sequence here. So, yeah, I loved it too. And again, with the life debt uh, scenario, that was something, seeing it again really clicked for me where, yeah, they don't need the life debt at all now, even though that was something I was expecting. And it is a story aspect that I do always kind of liked in the relationship, but this one is just working out better in my opinion. So, yeah, I could not be happier with how Han and Chewie uh, first met in this movie. I thought they nailed it. Yeah. And I would have to agree with that too. Like, um, I think on the one hand, the life debt is one of those things kind of like Han's history with the empire. Just one of those things that's kind of been talked about and hinted at for a long time that it would have been cool to see kind of finally like cemented in Canon. But at the same time, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you just said, Tim, that like, once you kind of get over that, it's like, you know, they didn't really need it. Um, like, I, I like the way that they go from sort of begrudging comrades who don't really like each other, but they just have to, you know, they're basically each other's only hope for getting out of the hopeless situation that they're in. Um, and then, you know, Chewie just kind of sticks with this crew because he's got nowhere else to go at the moment. And then through their adventures together, like he and Han become, you know, they go from sort of begrudging allies to partners to eventually best friends. And, um, you know, I think that makes it a, a lot more... Um, I don't know, sort of a, an easier relationship to like get invested in than one where it's just like, oh, well, he's just got this, uh, you know, companion that follows him around because he owes him a life debt from this one time way back when. Um, and I always assume too that like with the by the time of the original trilogy or whatever, like if Chewie did owe Han a life debt, like he wasn't sticking around by this point just because of the life debt. Like there obviously mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, more of a friendship that developed over time, but. Well, um, let's be still, real here, it's, too. It's cool to see that that was just what was holding them together. And let's be real. Like, if the life debt is, is easy, it's it's not lazy writing. I don't want to say that because I think that's an important part of, you know, Star Wars canon or the Legends canon, if you will. But it's it's too easy to write that. Like, oh, Han or Chewie has to go with Han because he owes him a life debt. Like, that's yeah. really easy. Whereas this is so much more natural. Like, it just... And again, like this is harder to write. Like it's scary to write something where you have to make Han and Chewie want to be together opposed to one having to be with the other. You know what I mean? So totally. like they were I mean, obviously they had to be together like, you know, initially because they were literally tied together. But what's cool, <laughs> it, what's cool is that's obviously like a, you know, a. Uh, not an analogy which it's it's a, a it's showing, of it yeah yeah it's like it's a visualization of them together like this is them they're tied together now forever and and then what's cool is that they they go in together and then you know chewie's like hey i'll, I'll go with you and, like, and they have that great moment on the ship where they're talking together and yeah that was again, great too yeah that was a great character moment like that was something i just wish oh man i'd love to see more of this stuff because it was great agreed. <laughs> yeah agreed. And that's why, see, the stuff, going back to the beginning with, like, Lady Proxima and all that stuff on Corellia, like, I kind of wish that stuff had been a little bit shorter, just so they could have a little more time throughout the rest of the movie to flesh out, you know, add an extra scene with Han and Chewie. Um, I also wish they had maybe fleshed out just a little bit more of, like, some of the heist stuff that they were doing and going more in-depth about, like, their plans and then the execution of it and that kind of stuff. But, we'll, I mean, we'll get to more of that later. Um but yeah, there were so many little great moments like that where, like you said, it would have been good to, you know, maybe get a little bit more of that. But I love the stuff that we did get. Um, and just talking about, you know, I mentioned how there was some stuff that kind of surpassed my expectations and some stuff that was kind of maybe not as great or that was just kind of okay. Um, 
the Han and Chewie stuff I absolutely loved. Um, and I know we, you know, we haven't even gotten to this part yet, but I will say the biggest strengths of the movie for me, um, barring the one thing at the end that we'll talk about, um, just like Han and Lando, Han and Chewie and Han and the Falcon, like those three pairings, which is basically the stuff that I was most excited to see coming into the movie to begin with. Um, that was all everything I wanted it to be and more, um, and then you're talking about going into this next scene here where they're with Beckett and his crew on this AT hauler as they're, um, you know, heading off to, um, I'm bad with the planet names and stuff. I should look this up. But what's the, the next planet, like the snowy planet that they go to? I believe it's Vandar. Or, see, I got to get more familiar with the names too, but I know it begins with a V. <laughs> Let me see. Oh, it is, yeah, Vandor. Vandor. At least according to Wikipedia. Um but yeah, when they're that's when you see that scene with Han and Chewie on the ship together. Oh, after their uh, you know steamy shower scene together, where they uh, you know get cleaned up from all that mud, and Han's yeah. like, <laughs> Chewie just walks in the shower with him, and Han's like, "What? Well, like we couldn't do this separately?" Um, it harken back to that moment in Return of the Jedi when Han gets thrown into Jabba's prison, and Han or Chewie just runs up to him and just hugs him. You know, that mm. closeness was always there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The um, but then when they're just standing out kind of on the, the bridge, I guess, if you will, um, of that ship and just kind of, um, getting to know each other and Han's like, well, what's your name anyway? Um, and he tells him and he's like, Chewbacca, well, you're going to need a nickname cause I ain't saying that every time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was just a nice little nod that I loved because he didn't even say like Chewy, I'm going to call you Chewy. Like that would have been really on the nose, but it's like, obviously we already know what his nickname is. And so just seeing that first moment of Han being like. I'm going to give you a nickname like you as the audience can just be like, hey, we know what that is. Um, so that was a nice little moment, too, where I felt like it was kind of a less is more approach, I guess. Yep. And that is the only time he does ever say Chewbacca, I believe, in any Star Wars movie, if I remember correctly, because it's always just Chewie after that. Really? No, he no, he says Chewbacca, I think, in, in a, a New Hope. Does I'm he? pretty sure he says, hi, how's Han Solo? Chewbacca here. Tells no, I think, me. No, I think, I think he says, says Chewie. Chewie. Obi-Wan says Chewbacca. Yeah, Obi-Wan says Chewbacca here, his first mate on the ship. Ah, okay. Hold on. I'm gonna I have the movie on my computer. I'm gonna whip it up while you guys are talking. So <laughs> Yes, but, must confirm it. Yeah, I, I will I will confirm this. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I think that the shower scene, which was at first, I'm like, this is kind of weird, but it worked. Like I was like, you know what I mean? Like it was, I don't know, like this. There's just so much of this movie that movie that I think that I thought that it wouldn't maybe work if you would have told me beforehand. But in the in in how the movie progresses, it makes sense. So I the shower scene I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, I'm also trying to Google and see if I can find out how many times Chewbacca is named in Star Wars, but Google <laughs> didn't answer that question for me. Um, At least not quick enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but anyway, so they, they go to uh, Vandor and start putting together their plan for um, this heist on this train that they're going to pull off, and you find out that, you know, again, kind of tying back to the beginning of the movie where Hans and Kira stole that, uh, you know, that coaxium fuel. It's like, well, now Beckett and his crew are trying to steal a whole lot more of it, Um and you don't really know why or whatever at first, but, you know, they're just trying to pull off this big heist and it's going to be a big score and, you know, they're going to get a ton of money from it. Um, and they're stealing it from the Empire. 
so they've got their their cargo hauler and they're basically going to um you know swoop in and you know they're making their plans for how they're going to detach the car and bypass the sensors and all that kind of stuff um and they have another cool scene after that where you know they're sort of um sort of making camp like the night before they're going to pull this heist off and you get to know more about all the characters and um you know han's telling everybody about the girl that he left back home and how he wants to uh you know get a ship and go back there and rescue her and that's where you have the scene where chewie is talking about um you know how where han says like um you know he wants to find either his family or his tribe i'm not sure which one he said and um you know rio's like well what's the difference um and you get to yeah. know Rio and Val and Beckett and, you know, Beckett, I, I liked his, like, Beckett was definitely my favorite of all the new characters in this movie. Um, just because, like, he did a good job of pulling off that um, sort of the mentor with, I wouldn't say a heart of gold, but the guy that's definitely like a very gray area, you know, scoundrel type character who is not. Someone you can still root for. Yeah, he's definitely not a good guy, but he has his good guy moments. Um mm-hmm. You know, he kind of takes Han under his wing. He gives him his blaster for the first time, which, of course, is another cool thing to see. Um, you know, just a little piece of that history of, uh, you know, another iconic part of Han Solo coming into place. Um, so, yeah. It's also I, I, cool about that campfire moment, too, is one of the many Easter eggs we got was the boss name <laughs> dropped by Val. Which I thought oh, was yeah. Cool. Like, <laughs> like, if I knew that was setting up the other stuff we're going to get, I would be like, oh, man, that's like. This is just the tip of the iceberg, but I would was discontent with hearing boss name drop there. But man, there's so much more to come, which I'm sure we'll reference. But that yes. was the first of many. And, and and I guess John Kasdan said he wanted he he tried to put Bosk in the movie, but it didn't work from I think for story group or something like that. He said he tried to get him in the movie. Hmm. So because he said Bosk is one of his favorite characters, and John Kasdan, for those who don't know, is wrote the movie with his dad, Larry Kasdan, the great Larry Kasdan. So, yeah, he actually said that Bosk was purposely put in there by him. I mean, John seems like a legit like Star Wars fan. Oh, like, yes, as we, as we as we know, like he's he wanted lots of stuff in this movie, and like and he said the the Bosk comment was just for for him basically because he loved boss so boss excuse me so yeah and by the way i just listened to it he does say chewy he does not say chewbacca you were right (laughs) oh okay um now we know for sure though yeah no man i loved the just how many references and easter eggs and stuff they had in this movie um Mm -hmm. and it definitely some deep cuts too (laughs) yes yes i loved that and it felt like it did a better job of sort of connecting like it felt like more connective tissue um than like because rogue one had a lot of easter eggs and stuff too but some of it was like them running into dr evazon on uh jetta and that to me at least felt gratuitous i mean i liked some of the other cameos and stuff in there like obviously you know i mean the vader stuff was freaking awesome but you know seeing like r2 and uh 3po at the rebel base and stuff like that was like oh that's a you know Nice little nod to those guys, but yeah, seeing Evazon and Ponda Baba was just like, wow, somebody really likes A New Hope and wanted to shoehorn those guys in there because apparently mm. they just incidentally happened to be on their way to the spaceport to get off the planet. Otherwise, they'd have been dead like half an hour later. Um, 
But yeah, the the connections in this movie, it didn't really feel like anything was just kind of shoehorned in there just for the sake of Easter eggs or nostalgia. Um, yeah, like you said, they went, with, natural, yeah. they went with some deep cuts. And I actually will say I'm kind of glad that Bosk didn't actually make an appearance in the movie just because when we're dealing... Stop that. No, no, no. Stop no, that no, right no, no. now. It's not because I have anything against Bosk, aside from how annoying it is to fight somebody playing as him in Battlefront. Oh, um, God. You, you said it, Kyle. <laughs> Seriously. But... I just don't, I didn't want them to like shrink it too much. You know, like it's a big galaxy. There's a lot of criminals and, you know, bounty hunters and scoundrels and all this kind of stuff. It was cool that they name dropped Bosk um, and somebody else that we'll mention later. But it's like, if you had all these characters showing up in the same movie, it would have been like, wow. Like, so in a huge galaxy, like all the smugglers and bounty hunters like hang out and know each other. And, you know, that would feel I don't know, kind of small to me. Um, and, and plus, too, there'd be no way Bosk and Chewie could work together on the same team. That <laughs> you know? is true. That is true. Although that could have been a, a cool way to maybe add in a line or two about, you know, some nuggets of uh, history between Wookiees and Trandoshans. But um, anyway, yeah, I yeah, don't it see was, that ending cool. any way them fighting each other, one of them <laughs> having to leave or just get taken out by one of the others though yeah maybe but, that's the reason why the story group didn't want him in there it's been, it's been too much <laughs> too much conflict for them to work together and get the heist plot moving forward yeah but um no it, it definitely was cool to have him name dropped though um and then um yeah i'm trying to think if there was anything else in that campfire scene that we wanted to well, bring up can I can I just talk about you know we're, we talked loosely about we, we started talking about the crew kind of overall right there kind of oh, back yeah. at Harvey Gold and and I, and I wanted to talk about the crew because I think I I really like these characters I liked Rio a lot I yep. loved Val I love Beckett and I I don't know about you guys but I I like Woody Harrelson um, he's great in the True Detective uh, mini or I guess series it's it's kind of off and on series uh, True Detective and um, the the I think he's a fantastic actor. I mean, he kind of plays. He doesn't. He doesn't have the best range, but when he's when he's locked into his character, like he's just in, and he nails it in True Detective. He nails it in No Country for Old Men for the short scene that he's in, you know, and and Kingpin and things like that. But man, I got to tell you that I love Beckett. Like I was not expecting to like Beckett at all for whatever reason. I don't know. And I just was like, okay, Woody Harrelson's in Star Wars. That's cool and all, whatever. But I ended up falling in love with the character. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but maybe it was the fact that he was like, you know, twirling his blasters on Mimban. Like he was, you know, just like, <laughs> that was you know, cool. <laughs> that was whatever. But I loved, loved that stuff. Um, but yeah, just, I really liked his character. And like, I love the fact that he kind of saw a little of himself in Han. And I think that's why he wanted to give him a chance, you know, yeah. like this guy, like he's made it. Um, these guys made it through, you know, the empire's infantry, infantry. I cannot say that word for a second. And he's made it through all this other stuff. Like Han's a survivor. And that's the thing he realized that this kid is, he's resilient and he sees that himself in him. Um, but at the same time, Beckett doesn't want to also just like take him on just for the sake of it. He wants to use him. So, there's just something about him that I, I just there was something charming to the to the character that I thought was perfect and and it, maybe it's because he, he dons a certain outfit on later on but I don't know <laughs> but but I I loved Beckett I thought the campfire scene was a great kind of introduction to all the characters um, I loved Val I thought Val was really cool I, I mean 
It's a shame something happens later on, but we'll get to that in a second. But I loved Beckett. Were you guys expecting to love Beckett as much as much as you did? I loved him. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I had like huge expectations for him or anything, but I knew that he was going to kind of be like he and Kira were going to kind of be the two main characters among like the the new cast of characters. Um, you know, so obviously aside from like Han and Chewie and Lando, I knew he was going to be one of the main players. And so I was expecting him to have a big role and I was, you know, hoping that um Woody Harrelson would do a good job with it. But yeah, I really did like that character a lot. Um I will say I wasn't as crazy about the other new characters. I mean, I liked Rio. He's a fun little character. Val was all right. I didn't really love or hate her. Um, I mean, I, I liked Beckett. I liked Kira. Um, we'll, we'll talk about L3, but I mean, she was kind of cool too, but, um, yeah, at least Val and Rio was just, I mean, they weren't in the movie for as long as I thought they would be. Let's put it that way. Um, and so totally agree with that. Yeah. I was just kind of like, Oh, okay. Then I, I guess we're done with them. Um, so they, they didn't make that big of an impact on me. Um, and that they were sort of part of the, the stuff in the movie that was like, I was not, um, I don't know, not hugely invested in. And again, not that I didn't like their characters or anything. It was just like, Oh, okay. Um, you know, served its purpose. Um, I think Rio was kind of more, the, the more fun of the two, um, you know, I just liked his, uh, little alien design and stuff, but, um, I don't know they're, they're decent characters. They serve their purpose in the story, but yeah, Beckett, I really did like a lot. Yeah. I kind of just went into it without any expectations for any of the new characters. Just, okay, I'm going to go and see it and let's see how I feel about these new characters that I'm going to be introduced to. And yeah, I got to say, I, like I said at the beginning, I liked them all. And in particular, this early crew that we got to meet here with Beckett, Val and Rio and um, the performances was good, but at the same time, what you guys are saying about not them not being in it as much as we thought, and I thought the same thing too. And I originally going into it when you saw like all the character posters, everyone who's going to make for this, you know, ragtag group of you know smugglers and whatnot, um, that was going to be like another ensemble group of characters like Rogue One, mm-hmm. where they're all going to be working together for this big heist and job that they're going to be taking on. But when we obviously get revealed that not all of them make it <laughs> later on. I don't. I think it served uh, the story and just the flow of the movie better. That it wasn't kind of doing a repeat of giving like a big ensemble of different characters to try to steal this one thing, similar to Rogue One. So I actually thought it kind of worked better for the story that we were with one uh, group of thieves that were spending some time that Han and Chewie were with, and then of course Beckett. But then later on, after the events of this sequence, they, we move on to another group. Uh, that they're involved with and it just i don't know makes the i guess the history of the experiences that han has a little more i don't know the right word to use it but just adds more to it i guess where he goes he meets all these different people and each one has different outcomes and and the jobs that they do showing that you know things don't always go easy and there's losses to be had when you're in this uh, kind of work or (laughs) life that han is leading now becoming an outlaw and smuggler uh, but it's just showing the different sides and the different people that in the different scenarios that you get with working with different members of a crew that you could be involved with. So I just like the aspect that it wasn't just this one group, but Han and Chewie and Beckett, they were involved with different people and there was different outcomes. And that's kind of what you would expect um, when you're doing these type of jobs and these type of, you know, smuggling arena and you're trying to s- steal things that 
things are going to go differently with depending on the people you work with. So I did like that aspect of it, and I thought it worked better for it overall when you look at the movie as a whole. It just ha- gave it a more distinct feel to it when it's a smaller group and more intimate uh, group you can get invested more with the characters, I think. So I did like that it was kind of split up uh, in two halves where Han and Chewie was one group and there was another one. But even though it is disappointing because I did really like Rio and Valid that they, you know, <laughs> unfortunately weren't in it longer and that, you know, they cannot <laughs> be in any further stories like, unless they do any prequel stories. But uh, I just think overall it worked better for the movies that Han and Chewie were involved with uh, different groups for the jobs that they were taking on. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the the crew, as far as like, I liked all the characters, but I, it's sad because if you don't kill off Rio or Val, then that takes away screen time from Lando and L three, exactly. mm-hmm. and and it make it, you you gotta do it. But here's the thing: I loved Val. I actually I actually really liked her character. I mean, she's just I, there's something about her. I just I thought was really cool. I just loved her attitude, and I loved. Just I would love to I would love to have seen her survive, but I think people would have complained that she didn't get enough screen time in the end. So, you know, I she served a purpose, and I love the fact that she like knew she was like you know listen I you need you know she cared enough for Beckett she was she sacrificed sacrificed herself because she knew if she tried to get out of it she'd die. So she was like you know what I'd rather go out this way. So yeah. I thought that was interesting. But I'm with you, Tim. Like you had. From the story standpoint, you had to get rid of them in order to, you know, make way for these other characters. Mm -hmm. Especially because also, I mean, Rio is kind of the pilot of Beckett's crew initially. And so you kind of have to get rid of him, too, to make way for Han to get his shining moments um, and to sort of step up and fill that role. Um, But anyway, so let's talk about this train heist scene, though, because this was actually really cool, I thought. Yes. Um, And there's one thing in particular that I loved about this that um, I'll see if you guys caught on to this as well. But, um, you know, so they, they get up the next day, um, you know, they're ready to pull off their heist. You know, everybody flies in on, uh, their AT hauler. They land on the top of the train. Meanwhile, Val is kind of further down the tracks and she uses a grappling hook to get herself up onto the tracks. And she's trying to disable this sensor that they're going to trip, um, you know, that's going to bring out some probe droids and she's trying to disable all that. Meanwhile, everybody else is on the train, um, and they're, you know, Han and Chewie are trying to uncouple the, the freight car and Beckett's going to, you know, hook the um, basically hook the cables from the hauler that Rio is flying um, on to, you know, hook the car up to the ship. And they're going to detach the car with the coaxium from the rest of the train and fly away with just that one car. Um, but of course, things go south. You know, they're trying to steal it from an Imperial train. So a bunch of stormtroopers come up or I guess are these the range troopers? Yeah. Yeah, they're the ones that kind of look like snowtroopers, but they got some cool new helmets and they've got like the uh the fuzzy capes on for the cold weather. Um and meanwhile, you know, Han and Chewie go down and they're trying to uncouple the train car. And Beckett's up there on top of the train having a shootout with the stormtroopers. And I don't know if you guys felt the same way about this, but I loved just the gunplay here with Beckett having the shootout with the troopers on the moving, you know, train and just the way that the cars are kind of rotating on this, you know, track that's kind of winding around the side of this mountain. And maybe it was just the visuals of it or the way that the whole thing was sort of... um, choreographed or like the sounds of the blasters but i was having flashbacks to the gameplay footage that we got of star wars 1313 
before it got canceled. And I was like, mm. man, this is the kind of sequence that I would have loved to be able to play in that game. Um, but it was like a really cool and unique kind of um, just little skirmish that we've never really seen before in Star Wars. I mean, we've seen a lot of, you know, shootouts with like Han and Luke and Leia running through the halls of the Death Star shooting at stormtroopers. And we've had plenty of like epic battle scenes where there's, you know, hundreds of droids and clones shooting at each other. Um, but yeah, just the the way that this whole scene played out with them, you know, shooting at each other across the moving cars and stuff, I thought was really cool. Um, and then, of course, Beckett gets rid of all the troopers. And then we get the introduction of another really cool character in Enthus Nest and um, yep. her band of marauders that show up and are also trying to steal this shipment. Um, I will say, quick note, and I'll see what you guys think about this. I, I have mixed feelings on her theme music that they use like, uh, for her no. entrance. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I like it, but it kind of just pulled me out of it because it doesn't feel like Star Wars. Like, it's, I don't know. Well, it, that was one thing that I was kind of on the fence about, but I love the design of that character. I love the armor of her whole gang of outlaws. I love their speeder bikes, and they show up and, you know, have more of a shootout with Beckett, and, you know, they're trying to fight for control of this train car and stuff, and it just added, you know, a new layer to it. And they even said earlier, um, you know, Val had said something like, um, you know, are we sure that, uh, you know, we got to get this done before Enfys Nest shows up or, you know, somebody else might try to steal this out from under it. And Beckett was like, no, don't worry. Enfys Nest isn't going to be here. Like I got this intel from my guy and he's the only one who knows about this. Um, but of course, Enfys obviously found out about it somehow and she shows up. Um, and so, you know, she's fighting with Beckett for control of this train. She's got a really cool, like vibro staff, axing with like a blade on one end and then like a blunt end that can like fire shock waves on the other end um so she's got a really cool fight scene with beckett she's got you know one of her she, guys spoiler alert come on man oh well, <laughs> the the gender anonymous mask figure of Enfys nest <laughs> tbr to be revealed um you know she's one of her goons uh you know jumps on um on board the their freighter transport and has a shootout with Rio and he ends up getting injured. Um, and Han has to go up there and, you know, take control of the ship from him. Um, and of course Rio ends up dying and, you know, Han ends up having to take control of the, the ship and, you know, sort of the whole getaway there. Um, and then like you were saying, Val, you know, basically sacrifices herself. They take too long with the job. And so the train passes the sensor and the probe droids come out and they've got her pinned down and she's like, well, I'm going to, Oh, cause she was supposed to like blow up a section of the track. Um, and she's not going to be able to get clear cause the probe droids have got her pinned down. And she's like, well, if, I just stay here then, you know, and I don't do my part, then the whole job's a bust anyway. So I might as well sacrifice myself and at least, you know, the rest of you guys can get away. Um, so she does that. She blows the tracks, you know, uh, sacrificing herself in the explosion, getting rid of the probe droids. Um, so, and then Chewie is able to uncouple the cars. So they fly away with their train car, but Enfys Nest and her guys have their cables stuck in it too. And so they're flying through the air of like fighting for control of this car um, and at the last second, Han decides to just let it go because they're headed right for a mountain and he's not going to be able to pull away with the, uh, the shipment. Um, and so he just drops it, he lets it go. And then Enfys and her guys, they also have to drop it. And this big canister of coaxium just crashes into a mountain and explodes and takes like half the mountain with it. And this is really cool visual of this, uh, you know, hyperspace fuel explosion. Um, so the getaway 
empty-handed. Beckett is not happy. Um, and of course, this is where we find out like, hey, I was working for somebody who hired us to pay that. And now, you know, it's not like this was just a score for ourselves, but now this guy's going to be after us and we got to pay him back. Um, so before we get on to that next part, um, thoughts from you guys on the uh, that whole train heist sequence, what do you think? Yeah, I loved it. At first, though, I got to say, I'm surprised or when I was watching it for the first time, going in without spoilers, I always thought this was going to be like the climactic action sequence Same. for the movie. Mm-hmm. And when we're getting there, like, oh, shoot, this is, we're already getting this <laughs> big action sequence and the, the, pretty much the end of the first act here. I mean, sweet. I mean, we, we got some more cool stuff in store for us. So, yeah, I loved it. It was really cool. It was something different for Star Wars as we got a glimpse of from seeing the trailers. And I think it really delivered on that. And, yeah, the cool stuff with the range troopers, they didn't really do too much. Couldn't expect them to because, you know, they weren't going to shoot off or kill off Beckett, Han, or Chewie in that moment. So, uh, But it was visually, I like their look. I come to appreciate and like, really like their design, even though I wasn't a big fan of it at first seeing just the toy image of it. But I come to like the range troopers. But things really got going for me once Enfys Ness and the Cloud Riders showed up. And uh, I was bummed to hear you, you were kind of on the fence about their music theme there, Kyle, because I loved it. I pretty much just love everything about Enfys Ness and the Cloud Riders there. And their music theme is one of them. It, at first, it was surprising because, like you said, it doesn't sound like anything we've heard before in Star Wars. But that's kind of why I really dig it. It has like a, like a child, cor- child choir uh, vocal on- arrangement on there, too. It has the more fantasy feel to it that I really like. So I, it's different. I can understand, well, it probably might not work for everybody, but I really liked it a lot. I think it might be the standout track on the entire score. I really, really loved it. But just Enfys Ness in general, she had a really cool action sequence here. It was, short, it was a short skirmish between her and Beckett, but it was really cool. Like I said, her having her maneuver that staff and that quick like sweep that she did to take down Beckett was really cool. So just a great overall action sequence. I thought on all fronts too. So surprised we got it in the beginning, but it was really, really cool on a lot of levels. Yeah. So I'm not going to say much about the, the train heist other than it's awesome. And I love the, the swoop bikes and all that stuff that come in. Like there's, a, there's the scenes where the up close shots of Emphis Nest, like giving orders, like yeah. it felt like with the, with the score, the sound effects, the voice modulator on it, it felt like star Wars to me. 120%. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm in a star Wars movie and I love this. I will say this about the score. And I said this on my other podcast, uh, blaster cannon. And I think the reason why I like it so much, Tim, is the or uh, not Tim, but Kyle, because Kyle's the one who hates on it, is the <laughs> fact that it's actually to me, it's actually foreshadowing who Emphis Nest is because mm-hmm. it represents the youth that sh- that she is, and it also represents the um, the multiple identities that the character has a the character has been. So to me, it's actually a part of like the like a character the theme is literally like telling you who you know you don't know who the move, the person is but now when you when you go back and watch it to me the score is like telling you like hey this is a young person and it's been multiple people like all at once i think it's beautiful like honestly i think it's one of the stronger themes we've gotten in a star wars movie to be honest so i'm not sure if that'll change your mind kyle but i just look at it like that kind of you know and analyze it that way maybe well, and I will say there's kind of a big reason why it maybe just pulled me out of it a little bit. It sounds a lot like the music from Avatar to me. Um, and Oh, snap. Which is not a bad thing because I love that movie. And I love, I, the, I love the, I like the movie too. And I love the music in that movie. Like, 
absolutely love it. It's just it because it uh, I don't know, like I like that they did something different, but just because it sounds like something else to me that I can kind of connect it to. And also just, I mean, it has more of a sort of exotic, like ethnic feel to it, which again, not a bad thing at all. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting arrangement and maybe it'll grow on me over time. And it's not that I don't like it as a piece of music. It's just, it doesn't quite feel like it. it I don't know. It just stick, it stuck out to me for some reason. And it didn't f quite feel like it fit in with what we typically know of as like star wars music i also think maybe because of where the character ends up at the end like what we ultimately end up finding out about Enfys nest and don't get me wrong i actually really love the character she's one of my favorite parts about this movie but the the music is almost trying to hype her up to be too like mysterious and ominous like it, this music would be better fitting for like a sith lord or something in my opinion um, it's like, they're trying to make her really menacing and mysterious. And then at the end, you find out that's not the case. Um, and I think just like her armor and the role that she plays in the story to begin with does that well enough in setting up, like, you know, kind of having you think it's one thing when it turns out it's something else. And I feel like the music is almost hitting you over the head with like, be afraid of this mysterious character who ends up not being a scary, mysterious character at the end. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's why I said, like, I, I just have mixed feelings on it right now. Like, I, I like it as a piece of music on its own. I'm just not sure how I feel about the way that it fits into um, Star Wars music as a whole and the way that it's used specifically in the story here. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of, that's a cool avenue that you brought up, Paul, about it, you know, kind of showing or telling you who this character is going to be without knowing it yet but then once you do realize we get the reveal of who Enfys Nest is I think that does make it even better and it's the theme that fits I don't know Kyle for you were saying about it feeling menacing at all or like an evil type thing I didn't get that vibe from it I definitely got the mysterious type uh, vibe to the music when we hear it but I'm not necessarily sure it's I got that evil feeling or like this is an evil character I mean not, not evil necessarily just sort of I don't know like definitely mysterious and like slightly ominous kind of yeah i don't maybe know. See just that, my take on it yeah i don't know to me it just like felt very fantasy to and i always love that type of <laughs> the music that kind of goes with some fantasy like movies and games and whatnot so like that's a it reminded me more of like a video game uh piece of music that i played like like final fantasy games or zelda games kind of stuff in that vein which right I really which love. again i wouldn't normally associate with star wars and so that's why like it just didn't <laughs> it just didn't click for me that's understandable but hopefully it'll grow on you because i really hope it does because i love it <laughs> yeah it, it might it might and again it's not that i hate it like i just i just have mixed feelings on it maybe just something you got to get used to yeah yeah well anyway um did you guys have anything else you wanted to add about that scene in general, aside from just the music there? No, I'm good. No, yeah. Just oh, okay, a great cool. action sequence. I just want to make sure we didn't gloss over anything else. But yeah. um, no, so just moving on to the next part, um, like I said, um, you know, Beckett reveals to Han, like, that uh, there's this other guy that I'm working for who's going to be mad that we lost a shipment now. Um, and he's like, well, I'm going to have to go to him and, you know, just fess up and hope that I can make this right. Um, otherwise, I'm going to spend the rest of my life looking over my shoulder and he's going to be trying to kill me. But, you know, you can get out of this now if you want to. Like, he doesn't know who you are. He doesn't know that you're working with me. And Han's like, 
no, let's do this. Like, I want to keep going. Like, let's go meet him and, you know, we'll try to make this right. Um, and that's where Beckett tells him, like, hey, if you do this, like, you're in this life for for good. Like, you know, these aren't the kind of people that you just, like, can walk away from. Um, and so this is Han taking another step sort of into that life of, you know, smuggling and crime and being an outlaw. Um, and so he and Beckett and Chewie are kind of trudging across the wasteland here and, they end up coming across where, um, you know, this big ship is docked um, and they go inside this big luxury yacht. And um, there's a cool scene here where they walk in and it's, of course, obviously another sort of homage to the the cantina scene. Um, but I will say out of all the out of all the movies that Disney has done so far with like so there's Force Awakens, Rogue One, Last Jedi and now Solo and every one of them. I don't know why, like they feel like they are obliged, like it's obligatory that they have to have like a scene in there that's an homage to the Moss Eisley Cantina. You know, there was Moss's Castle, then even in Saw's Hideout in Rogue One, you saw like a weird collection of aliens playing games and drinking and stuff. And then of course we have the uh, casino on Canto Bight in The Last Jedi, and now we've got this scene on the yacht here. To me, this one felt the least out of place. And I don't know if you guys would agree with that, but like it, I agree 100%. It was, well, maybe not out of place, but it worked the best. I'll say that. Yeah. Like it, it was, you could tell sort of what they were referencing or like what it was in homage to, but it didn't feel directly like an homage. It felt like it served a yeah. purpose in the story aside from being like, let's have a Moss Eisley Cantina scene. Like just the fact that it was this big luxury yacht that belonged to this infamous gangster, like it made total sense that he would have this pleasure cruise with like singers and people walking around drinking and, you know, sort of an exotic collection of alien species. And hey, we finally got a Twi'lek again. (laughs) They still exist in this universe. Um, what do you so, know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought this was a neat little scene. And then of course this is where, um, well, so Beckett goes off and says, I'm going to go meet with the guy. He's like, keep your head down. Don't talk to anybody. Like these aren't the kind of people you want to make friends with. Han's like, okay, cool. Walks around with his head down, bumps into Kira of all people. Um, and they start, you know, mingling and catching up and talking about, um, you know, just sort of what she's been up to. And Han's like, oh, I was going to come back for you. And she's like, well, you don't have to now because I'm here. Like, we're together again. And, you know, but you get the sense that she's maybe trying to hide from him, like, what she's actually been up to or how she got to, you know, where she is now. Um, you know, she's she's definitely hiding some, you know, a bit of a dark past in the past three years since Han has seen her. Um, and then, of course, Beckett comes back. And we find out that not only does Kira know Han, but she also knows Beckett, and they're acquainted through, you know, this gangster guy that they know. Um, and this is where we're introduced to Dryden Voss, um, who is sort of, you know, the the big criminal mastermind here and the one that Beckett was supposed to uh, steal the shipment for. Um, and, you know, I know that, um, you know, Paul Bettany coming in to play this character was sort of a last-minute replacement, but I liked what he did here. Like, it wasn't anything too you know, big or fancy or anything. Um, I mean, he didn't have a huge role or get a ton to do, but I liked his, uh, I liked his portrayal of, um, you know, just what he was able to do with Dryden and just sort of the role that he played in the story. But um, I don't know. What'd you guys feel about that character's introduction in this whole scene here? Dryden was whatever. I, he, I don't think he was a bad character. He was probably like my least kind of, again, not really even a criticism, but I just kind of the, the one thing that I felt suffered throughout the whole movie, it could have been a little bit more dynamic, I felt, was him. And again, Paul Bettany was 
you know, brought in because of time constraints, not really because of, you know, they couldn't get, do a more exotic looking character. And that's what Michael uh, Williams, the guy um, who was originally playing him, uh, he was supposed to be like kind of like a cat person, uh, you know, half cat, half man or something like that. Kind of like what his guards were, I think. Right? Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I was like, man, maybe that's mm. what he was supposed to be. But um, but yeah, so he was going to be a little more exotic looking and. We didn't get that, and that's because of the of the time constraints of the reshoots. I thought I thought Paul Bettany did a fantastic job. He did he did, he did fine, or yeah, he, he did an adequate job. But it just wasn't like he wasn't super interesting. How about that? Like I felt that it would have been cooler to have maybe it be a Jabba the Hut or something like that. I mean, obviously it can't be Jabba, but because you want to have that resolve at the end. But at the same time, I just felt like it should have been someone a little bit more interesting. And, and he wasn't bad. It just wasn't what I wanted him to be as far as an interesting looking, uh, interesting character. I thought he was fine. I thought he served the role that it, he had to play fittingly. I mean, cause you know, he wasn't the big boss behind Crimson Dawn. So, <laughs> but he, at the same time, he had like that calm, cool presence, but, you know, you better not mess with him because as you could see his like uh, uh, lethal side to him that he obviously had and showed in the movie. So I thought Paul Bentley did a good job of showing uh, both sides of that character. But mm -hmm. that whole sequence of them on the yacht and the little party they were having there, I agree. This is probably the best slash like musical sequence that you got in Star Wars since uh, probably the cantina, I would say, because maybe even the best uh, music song on a soundtrack with an actual vocal performance on there. Uh, probably I out of know. everything, if you compare it to Lottingneg, Jedi Rocks, Jabba Flow, and I guess to an extent, extent Yub Nub, this probably is the best song we've got in Star Wars with a vocal track on there because it just felt, you know, it had a jazz like nightclub feel to it and it felt like how it would sound in the Star Wars universe. It didn't sound like, then some that was overly annoying as some Star Wars music <laughs> track to be like Jedi Rock. So uh, I thought this whole sequence was fitting and it, you know, it felt natural. Like you said, Kyle, it felt didn't feel out of place or that they were just trying to do the standard homage to a place, with a lot of aliens and some music going on. It felt right for the story and that the big criminal boss would be in a place like this, having a party with some music going on. So, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. I, by the way, I have a comment about the most Eisley scene. And it's not about this, but I will say I love the the song as well, and I love the frog singing back up with the lady. Yep, <laughs> mm -hmm. that was amazing. We were all wondering what his purpose was in that trailer, that one shot we got of him. Like, why is he there? But he was a backup singer. <laughs> yeah, so that was good. cool. I believe the song. Looking at the soundtrack right now, it's called "Chicken in the Pot." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. <clears throat> um. Yeah, so I mean that was a just you know a fun little sequence with all the aliens and stuff and the music and all that, um, and then you know they go and Dryden takes them to his own little personal quarters, um, and it's like okay let's time you know time to to talk and get down to business, um, and you know figure out what we're gonna do here because you guys owe me money, um, and um, you know because they were trying to steal all this coaxium from him um, or for him. They're like, okay, well, where can we get more of that? And uh, I think maybe it's Kira who makes a suggestion like, um, you know, maybe we can get some, you know. Uh, oh, actually, one thing that was cool before that, uh, 
was that she name dropped she's like the well the only other place you could get that much would be like at some imperial vault like maybe on scarif yeah um, that's right and she mentioned one other place too but just to hear you know scarif name dropped in there again nice little connective tissue um to the you know other stories in the universe um and han is like well what about you know unrefined coaxium um and she's like, well, the only place we can get that much is, you know, supposedly there's some in like a big fissure underneath the spice mines of Kessel. Um, so now we have the setup for the big heist of the movie. Um, you know, we're going off to Kessel, um, which, of course, is foreshadowing. You know, we know that Han's going to make the Kessel run and all that kind of stuff. Um, but and they talk about like... Um, you know, well, if you get unrefined coaxium, then, you know, it's going to degrade really quickly. And like, yeah, you could steal it, but it's going to blow up your ship before you're ever able to make it back to a refinery or something. And so then that's when you're going like, ah, so that's why he's going to have to make the Kessel run like faster than anybody else ever has. Um, so cool little bit of setup there. Um, and, uh, you know, Dryden asks Kira, he's like, hey, you know, do you think your friends can pull it off? And she's like, yeah, I do. And he's like, OK, good, because you're going with them to make sure that they do. Um, so now we have our new crew of, you know, Han and Chewie and Beckett and Kira who are going to go steal this shipment. Um, and Beckett's like, all right, I can get the supplies, um, and the weapons and all that kind of stuff that we need. Uh, you know, Kira, do you know where we can get a ship? And she's like, yeah, I know a guy. So they go to, you know, the local cantina or what have you. And this is where we are introduced to Lando Calrissian, um, and, you know, Kira obviously introduces or kind of talks him up ahead of time about, um, yeah, he's the best smuggler around. And, you know, he's kind of out of the smuggling game now. And he's just kind of a, a I forget what she says, he's, but, you know, gambler and um, or she, I think she says he's a sportsman or something like that. Um, but, man, just this the introduction to Lando, I thought was really cool. Um, and, of course, you know, Han meets him for the first time playing Sabacc, the game that, uh, you know, we had heard about um with uh you know that being how han won the falcon from him um and so han and uh you know at their sort of play at first is like oh well maybe we can uh you know just buy our way into this game and you know maybe he'll get cocky enough to like bet his ship and we can just win his ship from him and we'll we'll take that to uh go do our mission um so han gets into the game of sabak uh, ends up being really good. He's going toe to toe with Lando. They're beating all these other guys, and Han is, you know, calling Lando's bluff and all this kind of stuff, and you know, being this, uh, you know, showing up as the young hotshot that everybody's all impressed with and everything. Um, and they make it to the end of the game. He thinks he's got Lando beat, and but you know, Lando beats him with the Trump hand of you know full Sabak or whatever. And this is after Lando has bet his ship. Han bets his ship against him, which he doesn't actually have a ship. Um, but I heard some people say that, like, or some people pointed out that the model of the ship that he offers to bet against Lando is actually the same model as the Ghost. Um, yeah, I've heard that too. From Star when Wars, I first Rebels. heard it. I wasn't sure what the ship was, but then finding that out, okay, that's cool. Yeah. So there's another, you know, like you were talking about deep cut references because I don't even remember what the model name of the Ghost is, but that was pretty cool. Um, but of course, he doesn't have that ship. Um, but you know, he bets it against the Millennium Falcon, just being cocky enough, thinking he can win and he ends up losing. Um, but then of course we see it's, you know, through a, a just, you know, quick camera shot that Lando cheated and, you know, had a little, uh, device that had a card up his sleeve that he could, you know, flip out to get his Trump hand. Um, but anyway, so they leave the game. Um, but then, um, 
you know, Lando comes up to them afterwards. He's like, all right, where's my ship? And Han's like, oh, I don't have it here with me right now. But then they meet up with, you know, Kira and Beckett and they tell him about the whole um, scheme that's going down. And of course, you know, Kira having all these underworld connections already knows Lando. And then Beckett shows up and Lando's like, oh, you're Tobias Beckett. You killed Aura Singh, um, which was another <laughs> cool like, whoa, yeah. what? I know. That was a, such a surprise when I heard that. Like, oh, first of all, they name dropped Aura Singh, but she's dead now and Beckett killed her. <laughs> like, we got to get that story now. When's that coming? The fall going killed out? her. Oh, yeah. He's <laughs> like, well, I like to think the fall That's killed true. her and I just pushed her. <laughs> but still, we got to see that happen now in some form. Yeah. But, I mean, that was another, you know, again, just cool little connective piece of, you know, bringing in, um, you know, another sort of loose end from other Star Wars stories into that. And honestly, I mean, Ara Singh was like a cool bounty hunter in Clone Wars and stuff, but she's a minor enough, minor enough character that you can kill her off with a line of dialogue like that. And yeah, it's totally. not like, it doesn't necessarily feel like a disservice to the character. I don't think anybody else was really like, you know, oh man, I really want a, a spinoff movie about Ara Singh and find out what she was up to during this time period. Um, you know, I think she's kind of served her purpose. So, um, you know, to get that kind of backstory about Beckett was kind of cool. And I'm sure we'll probably get that in a future comic or something like that. Um, well, there's a Beckett comic coming out in August, so. Yeah, I wonder if, I wonder if they'll do that in that one. Because I know it's yeah. supposed to deal with him and Enfys Ness, but maybe Aura Singh will show up somehow. <laughs> Possibly. He pushes her. Yeah, I didn't well, know. It, I didn't know, like, how how far back that was supposed to take place or anything. Yeah, and, true. And really quickly, I want to say, I actually thought that the 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 Sabak scene was like the Moss Eisley uh, or yeah, the Sabak scene was like the Moss Eisley moment in my opinion, because there wasn't really a lot of exotic looking characters. I thought in the, the Dryden's yacht necessarily, but mm. I think like to me, like the, the Sabak scene was like the Moss Eisley thing, the or moment, if you will. I and, I, that too. and I feel it was really subtle. Like it wasn't like it it felt very natural to me too. Like I think both felt natural, but to me, like the one that felt like the most, like Jabba the Hutt, Pal- Jabba the Hutt, Jabba's Palace, and and Moss Eisley was the Sabak scene, and I felt it was perfect. That was a perfect amount of aliens and everything. I thought it was, I thought it was great. Yeah, I was yeah. only slightly disappointed because I maybe I just didn't look hard enough, but I didn't see as much Therm scissor punch as I wanted. <laughs> He's right next to him. <laughs> Well, I yeah, I think a lot of his hands. See, I think he's <laughs> only like he might only be in it at the beginning because it's like halfway through, like they're they're already playing the game. I keep being like, oh yeah, scissor punches in here somewhere, right? And then I like I never see him for the rest of the scene. Yeah, he's I, he. I know he's like he, you definitely see him at first when he when they when he first sits down and he's talking to Lando. You see Therm the whole time. I I don't remember seeing him after that, but he's in a good a decent chunk of that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll have to look for so him d- again the next time I go see it. But what did you guys think about the introduction of uh, of Lando and then just um, sort of Donald Glover's portrayal of him? Yeah, I mean, this whole sequence, it's probably not my favorite part of the movie, but it's one of them. I thought it was great on a lot of levels. I mean, first and foremost, the introduction of Lando and just Donald Glover's performance of him was pitch perfect. And when we were all knew he was going to do a, a really good job and just kill it, and he really did, and it... In his first line of dialogue, he knew it was going to be great. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounded almost pitch perfect, like a younger Billy D. Williams. It was like, man, that, it almost sounds like Billy D. right there. He doesn't have that same uh, type of tonal inflection of a young Billy D. Williams throughout the whole course of the movie. But in those first few bits of dialogue he had, it sounded just like him. But 
everything about his first meeting with Han I thought was perfect. And it was funny because in the buildup to the movie and the marketing, they were kind of showing this to be the Sabat game that Han and Lando were going to have where he loses the Falcon. But in the when we're watching the movie, we're, I kind of knew, I'm sure a lot of people did too, well, this isn't exactly where <laughs> the game that Han is going to win the Falcon from Lando because we know there are scenes coming up later on where Lando is piloting the Falcon based on stuff we've seen in trailers and TV spots or whatnot. But this, regardless of Han not winning the Falcon here, it was just a great scene all around. Their back and forth and the banter that they had against each other while they're playing, the insults they were having, it was just pitch perfect. It was great. I mean, the, the fact that Lando actually they make reference to him calling Han and Han correcting him mm-hmm. <laughs> about the pronunciation of it was really fun. And just like the back and forth where Lando saying, you know, maybe you should, you should probably quit while you're ahead. And Han goes, you should quit while you're behind. And it just felt so perfect that these type of two, these characters that we already know about their first meeting, they would be having this type of uh, back and forth with each other while they're playing this game. I just loved it so much. And again, like we were talking about with Han and Chewie in their first meeting, Han and Lando does the same thing about, enriching these characters when we watch them again in the original trilogy i mean it's just awesome like because i watched empire a few nights after i saw the movie and that moment when they're on the landing platform and lando says what have you done to my ship and han's on hey your ship remember you lost it to me fair and square it wasn't that exact moment anyway but we know just the history they have and han's dialogue about you know, we go way back, Lando and me, and this is where it all started. So I'm just—it's just so awesome that once we watch those movies like Empire and we hear those bits of dialogue, we can think back and reference to when Han and Lando first met. When he says, "Like we go way back," and it's this moment right here—it's just really cool. And it really was one of those moments that I was looking forward to that delivered on the potential of how cool it could be. I just love this sequence. Yeah, well, I would agree. Like. Kind of just like you were saying, um, the first line you hear out of Donald Glover's mouth is Lando. And I don't think you even see him on screen yet. It's like Han's walking into the room and you hear Lando, like, you know, off screen, um, you know, just talking to somebody that he's playing with at the table. And I had been maybe a little bit worried coming into this. Like, I had faith that Donald Glover was going to do well as Lando. But just from what we had seen from the trailers and stuff, like, it wasn't quite blowing me away. And one thing that I was maybe a little bit worried about is that he didn't really sound like Billy D. Williams. Again, just from like the couple of lines that we had heard in the trailers and stuff. And of course, people talk about a lot with these, um, you know, younger actors playing younger versions of these characters. Like you don't want Alden Ehrenreich doing a Harrison Ford impersonation. You don't want Donald Glover doing a Lando or a Billy D. Williams impersonation. Like you want them to kind of make the role their own. But Lando has just such a unique personality and such a unique sort of delivery and, and, uh, voice um you know as portrayed by billy d williams that like i definitely wanted some of that from donald glover and so the when you would just hear that first line and it sounds exactly like him i was like all right awesome that's lando um and throughout that whole scene yeah like you said when he's you know calling him han and you know just sort of the the quips that they're trading back and forth over the game i immediately was like all right i'm happy with both of these performances here and we hadn't even really talked about this yet but alden ehrenreich is han i also was actually like that was one part of the movie that definitely did surpass my expectations um i think i had higher expectations going into this movie for lando and chewy than i did for han um and especially with some of the stuff we'd heard behind the scenes like you know there were rumors that um 
you know, the original directors like weren't happy with his performance and they were like hiring an acting coach for him on set and everything. And I was like, all right, well, like as long as Lando and Chewie are good and Han is like not terrible, I think the movie will be okay. But I thought he actually did really good as Han. Um, and I yeah. thought Billy D or <laughs> Billy, uh, <laughs> I thought Donald Glover did great as Lando. And so, um, yeah, just seeing the two of them going at it in this scene, I thought was really great. And then I like what you were saying too, Tim, about just sort of the way that they subverted your expectations here. Cause at least for me, when I was watching this, I wasn't really thinking about the trailers and like what was coming later. I was just like, Oh, is this like the scene? You know, they're, they're here playing Sabacc. Is Han going to win the Falcon from him? Um, and then of course they're like, Nope, he, you know, Lando pulls the trick card and, um, Han ends up losing, but then when they go and meet Beckett, um, it's funny, the whole reason Lando joins, or agrees to let them use his ship, um, he, you know, when he talks about, like, hey, you killed Laura Singh, he's like, you did the galaxy a favor that day, and especially me, because I owed her a lot of money, and so, you know, in, uh, in a show of my gratitude for that, like, I'll join your crew, I'll let you guys use my ship for, you know, 50% of the take. Um, and Beckett's like, uh, you get 25 and he's like, eh, you know, I'm feeling generous and like, I really appreciate what you did by taking out Aura Singh. So, uh, I'll do it for 40. And he's like, no, you'll do it for 25. Um, I forget exactly what he says to get him to change his mind, but he might, you know, threaten him or something like that. Um, and Lando's like, all right, 25 it is, uh, you know, we'll go get on the Falcon. And then we're also introduced to Lando's droid L3, um, who's sort of his companion and co-pilot, um, and somewhat of a droids rights activist because we see in this uh, cantina or whatever where Lando was playing Sabacc, there's also like some uh, basically like battle bots or whatever. Like, I don't know if you guys have yeah. ever seen that, you know, the thing where they get the robots in the cage matches and they're like hitting each other with buzz saws and stuff. Well, this is like the Star Wars version of that where it's just like gladiator matches with droids killing each other. Um and she's basically trying to get it to stop. And she's like, oh, you know, we're, we're droids and we have, you know, we've got our own rights and feelings. And, you know, this is wrong. And, you know, you guys shouldn't be paying for this and blah, blah, blah. Um, so but she's definitely introduced as like maybe one of the most. I don't know if I'd say the, the droid with the most personality, but maybe the most fiercely like independent droid that we've seen so far, especially the fact that she's yeah, trying to get yeah. other droids to, like, no, don't, you know, be slaves to these masters and stuff. It's like somebody, you know, obviously hasn't wiped your programming in a long time. And Lando explains why he hasn't. Um, but I, at the same time, I almost like to think of her as like R2-D2 if he was female and could speak. Cause you know, R2's got that, <laughs> R2's got that feistiness to him also. Um, but anyway, yeah, so what did you guys think of that character? L3 was, I thought she was fine. I, I thought that she was kind of here today, gone tomorrow kind of a thing. It was, she was only on screen for a, a little limited, a, a limited amount of time. And they, you know, they did away with her pretty quick. Um, I, I liked the character. Um I thought it was kind of weird when they, you know, a little, it was, it, I thought it was a little weird. They're implying what she and like Lando could have a relationship together. But at the same time, people like groaned or I think they're, they're taking it way too seriously. Like I didn't, it was played for laughs. Some people were upset at what, well, I don't know. It was, it was kind of weird how people got upset about it for me. I, I thought it was played for laughs. I thought it was funny. I, I thought it was, you know, kind of cute, actually, that L3 is kind of delusional and obviously has a lot of loose wiring that she thinks that, like, Lando has, like, these really, you know, intense feelings for her that, that go beyond, like, 
you know, I don't know, whatever. But um, no, I thought she was cool, and I, I, I just love. I kind of liked what she represented as far as, you know, the droids' right act activists a little bit because they are like they're droids are slaves to a lot of people, and she's kind of bringing up a good point. So, you know, she represents something that's very interesting. Um, they don't touch on it a ton, but it's an interesting idea. I also like what, what ended, up hap- ended up happening to her to the Falcon when she became a part of the Falcon. So, you know, and now that, like, she's she's always – she's the navigating computer of, of the Falcon and then how mm. she's – you know, she like, when, when three – obviously, the obvious line is your ship has the most peculiar dialect. Oh, you know? and, yeah. I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's that line, and and so, yeah, like, he's talking about L3, L3 is communicating to 3PO, and he's like, whoa, this is weird. So, you know, and it's such a random line in Empire Strikes Back that they link it to, and they obviously had a reason for her to, you know, they needed to have Lando to get upset and to, like, you know, to, to be emotionally kind of charged, to go out there and get shot for and for Han and take the Falcon. So it kind of, it all worked out in the end. But um, but yeah, I thought L three was a fine character. She wasn't my favorite character by any means, but I thought she was okay. No, yeah, I liked her a lot actually. I mean, I was glad we got a different type of droid in this movie. First off, that it's a female droid, and that it's one that you know is not owned by anyone. Like you guys mentioned, the whole like droids right activist, and how she's just working with Lando. She doesn't work for Lando. She's not his droid. I I like that aspect and the way trying to convince her, you know, to have some type of authority over that he's you know the captain of the ship and like if you're on me on this job you got to listen to what i say type of thing but yet she's she doesn't have to she's uh, like her own free droid so to speak so i like that aspect they brought to her and then her kind of starting that droid rebellion on uh on kessel there i thought was pretty it was like a fun little sequence and reminded me some of those old uh i believe those old dark horse comics where they had like a droid rebellion story arc uh, hmm. a while ago which is kind of i don't know if it was a direct reference to that but that's what it reminded me of so I did like the character, but I have to say, I was not. Uh, some people said they saw this coming. I did not, but I think it was really cool, like you said, Paul, of what they did with her as far as putting her programming as like into the navigational computer of the Falcon. I thought that was cool on two fronts. One is that you know it was kind of it was sad to see the character go out the way she did, like all like triumphant and starting this droid rebellion, but then she gets shot, and then you know when she was dying in Lando's arms, like not knowing what's happening to her, it was it was sad. But I like the idea that I like she's part of the Falcon. The character lives on now. That every time we see the Falcon, we're seeing L3. I mean, I think that's really, really cool for the character to survive in that way, where she's appearing in every Star Wars movie in a small way now once we see the Falcon. I think that's really cool. And mm. the other reason is what you said, Paul. Just the, you know, the connections we can make it to it, connections we can make to it now in certain scenes like in Empire. It's just an added connection I wasn't expecting, but it's really cool now. It makes total sense that bit of dialogue you mentioned with 3PO about you know complaining about the computer having uh, you know particular dialogue it, it makes perfect sense to the character we saw of L3 for him to say that so yeah she was a character that I really liked and had some surprising moments that I wasn't expecting to how she connects to the grander scheme of things in regards to the Falcon so I really like that aspect that they did with her mm-hmm. yeah I like the character too and I, I definitely agree with all those points you just hit Tim as far as like um you know, her connections to the Falcon and all that kind of thing. And just being like a new type of droid that we haven't seen before was fun. Um, I will say this is one, and obviously everybody's going to have their own opinion and it kind of depends on your own point of view. But 
um just reading some early reviews and things i had seen some people say like oh she steals the show and this is like the best new character and i remember reading one either review or tweet or something where they said like she was even better than k2so which having seen the movie now myself i'm like that is absolutely not true um, <laughs> not even close yeah man. not, not no close. it's it's no comparison i mean k2 might be my favorite droid in a star wars movie like i mean i think r2d2 has a, a special place in every star wars fan's heart this might sound like blasphemy but i will say i like k2so better than c3po fight me on that um whoa i was gonna say paul's the perfect person to fight yeah, you on that one <laughs> like it's not cool don't uh, that. i don't know i i love k2 he's awesome um but um yeah so so l3 was i don't know good character um and you know they did some cool stuff with her <laughs> like you were saying paul that whole scene where she's talking about um you know her and lando potentially having a relationship like it i feel like it started out being played for laughs and then it kind of ends on an awkward note where you're just like wait was she being serious like um you know because she starts out uh she's talking to kira and she's like you know oh, so what are you going to do about your little problem with you know the boy that's totally in love with you and like you have you don't have feelings for him like i feel you know the same it's the same situation with me and lando like he's you know obsessed with me and like i just see him as a partner um and you know it's it's kind of like oh haha that's funny she thinks lando likes her and kira's like wait how would that even work she's like oh trust me it works and i'm like wait like what are they trying yeah. to hint at something here? Or is this still just <laughs> supposed to be funny? Like, I wasn't sure what was going on there. Yeah, it, um, it makes you think about it for far too long, probably. You yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was like, okay, if this is a joke, like, joke's over. Let's move on. Um, and it was weird because I didn't really get a good sense of, like, how that played out with the audience. Because, at least for me, like, when I went to see this... Um, the first time, well, at least the first time I saw it, like the theater was not very crowded. And I went to like an 11 o'clock show on opening night because um, I had to go to a high school graduation earlier that day. But then I was doing a panel about it at uh, Phoenix Fan Fest or Comic Fest. It used to be Phoenix Comic Con and they changed the name. Um, but, you know, I go and uh, do a, a Star Wars panel there every year uh, with our friends Jason Hunt and Joey Letson. Um, and our panel was like the next morning at 1030. So I was like, well, I got to get the screening in on opening night. So I went to the 11 o'clock show and there were like maybe a dozen other people there in the theater with me. Um, yeah, I was disappointed to hear for an opening night, but I sadly, I don't think that's you're the only one who experienced that. Yeah. Well, and especially a later show like that. I'm sure there would have been more people there if I had gone at like seven o'clock or something like I normally would have. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, some of the jokes and stuff, it was hard to tell, like, how well those would have played over with a full audience. But um, anyway, so that was, you know, the introduction to, uh, you know, L3. Um, you know, so now they've got Lando, they've got their ship, um, and they're off to the Spice Mines of Kessel. Um, and this was a cool little sequence, too. They also mentioned, they had made reference earlier to uh, Kessel being owned by the Pikes. And, yeah. um you know, Dryden Voss was like, well, I don't want to risk war with the Pikes. And so, you know, I'm not going to go there. And they were like, well, they don't know that we work for you. So, you know, we just won't tell anybody. And he's like, okay, yeah, that could work. Um, so when they first get to Kessel, you see one of the, the Pikes who's like, you know, they're, of course, the guys in Clone Wars that were part of uh, Maul's, you know, what, Shadow Collective um, when he was getting his little underworld organization together. Um and so to see those guys, you know, at least see one of those guys again in live action, that was cool. Um, just to have a, you know, a race that was introduced in the animated series and have that, you know, fleshed out on the big screen. Um, 
So that was pretty sweet. And then just to see them infiltrating Castle. There was another really deep cut reference here where, um, you know, once they infiltrate the prison and they start executing their plan, like Kira takes out the um, the uh, Pike guy with, you know, martial arts. And L3 is like, whoa, what mm-hmm. was that? And she's like, oh, that's Taras Kasi. You know, it's a fighting form that I heard. <laughs> and I was, I, I was like, whoa, going yeah. way back with that one. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't even know what that was until um, uh, Dave, who I saw it with, were driving a Target or something. He goes, "You recognize what she called her martial arts?" I went, "No." He goes, "This," and he showed me the fighting game. I, I remember <laughs> I had kind of heard about the game, but I never. It was I was well away from video games at that part, at, at that time. So I had no idea that even existed for a while. Yeah, so that, if, you, if you don't know what we're talking about, that's an old, old Star Wars video game called uh, Masters of the Terrace Kasi, um, which is a, it was the one time they ever tried to make a, tried an attempt at making a Star Wars fighting game. And I think this came out in like the mid 90s, like on the PlayStation 1. And, you know, of course, they were trying to capitalize off the success of like Tekken and Street Fighter and all that kind of stuff. Um, it bombed it was a terrible game i've never played it but it is consistently <laughs> like if you <laughs> if you look up anybody's like top 10 lists of like top 10 worst star wars games this is always like in the top three if not number one um just infamously bad but still just the reference to the fact that this is an actual like fighting style in the star wars universe i thought that was just a really cool throwback and mention to that even if the game itself was terrible just sort of making that connection with the lore i thought was really cool yeah that's one of my favorite references and easter eggs in the movie i started i wouldn't say bust up laughing but i i had a big chuckle when i heard that. i was like oh man like i can't believe they referenced terrace kazi like i was laughing then my brother sitting next to me like he saw me laughing and he goes oh like what is that and playstation fighting game <laughs> like oh <laughs> like couldn't believe they were referencing that game i just love the fact that something that's as horrible of a game as terrence Kazi, which <laughs> i have played it it's beyond awful controls are bad slow i'd like the idea kind of the irony that probably that's one of the worst fighting games of all time regardless of its star wars is named now that it's in canon it's like looks to be one of the like hardest like a uh, martial arts styles in the star wars universe like to master based on something that's so bad <laughs> in the actual game but it's just one of those deep cuts that you just really appreciate as a long time hardcore fan that they're bringing into one of the movies because i believe like in some of the visual guides and stuff they make reference to terrace Kazi. i might be wrong but i think the praetorian guards like some of them are trained in that i have oh. to double check but i thought i remember reading that in the visual guide but, I mean, it's on another level when you get it in a movie and actually hear the name be dropped. So I love that. It was just really cool to have one of the best fighting styles in the Star Wars galaxy be referenced as one of the worst Star Wars games ever. <laughs> it's just really funny to me. But at the same time, I love that it's there. Yeah, it was a cool little Easter egg for sure. Um, yeah, I'm Just out of curiosity, I'm looking this up on um, Wikipedia. And at least for this, so it says, in the new Star Wars canon, Terrace Kasi was first mentioned in the 2015 mobile game Star Wars Uprising. And in Star Wars Legends, Terrace Kasi first appeared in the 1996 novel Shadows of the Empire. Um, 
See, that I didn't know. Because I know I read Shadows of the Empire a little bit after it came out. So I probably played the PlayStation game before I even read Shadows of the Empire. But I, it's been years since I've read it, so I don't even remember that it was I don't even, Yeah, I don't even remember that ever being mentioned. Granted, I read it when I was in eighth grade, so... You know, yeah, but it it does say um, so. This Teroskasi was a form of hand to hand combat. Its practitioners were ranked into novices, adepts, or masters. Uh, Kira, a Crimson Dawn lieutenant, was proficient in this form of combat, having been trained by her employer Dryden Vost, and used the form to take down Quay Tolsite of the Pike Syndicate. And yeah, the elite Praetorian guards of the First Order were also trained in Teroskasi okay. along with other martial arts. So I guess that was in uh, the Last Jedi, the Visual Dictionary. Um, and they probably threw that in there at the last minute, knowing already that, that was you know in the script for uh, Han. I would imagine that's a great point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was cool. Um, and then of course you know they infiltrate uh, the spice mines of Castle. Like Han and Chewie are um, basically you know Kira goes pretending to be this um, you know important representative from some other crime syndicate or something and is saying like we're going to offer you a sample of our slaves and so han and chewie are the slaves um beckett is uh sort of posing as her bodyguard wearing the same outfit that lando wears when they infiltrate jabba's palace so that was cool to see <laughs> yeah um and by then... the way that's that's my favorite one of my favorite designs in star wars and from return of the Jedi. So when I saw it in the trailer and in this movie, maybe that's what made me love Beckett. Cause he's wearing my one of my favorite costumes in star Wars. I love that costume. Like, I think it's just perfect. And seeing that again on screen was a really fun and surreal experience. I just have to say that. Like, I love that design. Yeah. But let me ask you guys this question real quick. Who do you think had it? Do you think Lando had it on the Falcon, or was it part of the gear that Beckett round up before they went on Beckett's the mission? Gear. Okay. Yeah, I, I would say it Beckett's probably gear. was Beckett's gear. And he left it, because now I'm going to deep cut you guys here in a second. What's interesting, if you guys remember, not only is it take, it has an appearance in this movie, but it also has appearance in Star Wars issue one of the new Marvel series, where uh, Han comes off the Falcon that's right. That he's a, uh, you know, so, uh, an administrator or some kind of ambassador for Jabba, and he's got Leia and and Luke in those same outfits. So he's got two. Oh. Of them. Yeah, that's right. I forgot all about that in the first issue. Yeah, that was a so, great callback. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that Han knows about it. He must have went out and got a replica, uh, replica one. Yeah, or so, Beckett got two and they only needed one. Ooh, there you go. So yeah, there you go. I mean, there's there it, it already has a callback. So obviously, it stayed on the Falcon because you know Lando eventually yeah. used it. But but no, it, it's and Han used it too. I mean, maybe he used it multiple times besides that. So I think it's a great great call. I mean, that's great callback because and that's the thing that I love about John Kasdan. I think John knows what what Star Wars fans are going to geek out about and little stuff like that. It goes a long way. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. It totally does. It's it's the little things that matter a lot to us in certain aspects. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so anyway, they're all kind of playing their roles in this breakout, and then um, and then of course you have L three, who's also posing as you know just Kira's droid. Um, she starts slicing into the systems and basically starting a riot. She you know first like starts taking the restraining bolts off the droids in this control center and uh, sets them all free and has them just kind of running around doing whatever. And then she starts um, 
you know, setting prisoners free and opening doors. And, you know, there's just this mass prisoner breakout. Um, and then, you know, so Han and Chewie, who are posing as the slaves, they get to slip away and they, uh, oh, and we have, of course, a fun scene in an elevator where, um, you know, they get away from their captors and Chewie rips somebody's arms out of his socket That's for right, the first yeah. time. Um, and that was, that was another fun little moment where, um, you know, it's like the two guys that are holding them hostage and, you know, Han knocks his guy out and then just looks over at Chewie and Chewie's just holding two arms in the air. And Han's like, great, the one uniform that would have fit me that, you know, yeah. I could have used as a disguise. And you went and ripped I laughed off of out me. loud when, when that when that happened, like not just their arms ripped off, but the fact that Han is just like, great, that's the one that could fit me. I, <laughs> that humor was great. Yep. I thought yeah. It, Again, it's not, you know, hit you over the head like, you know, like, again, Han could very easily or you could easily write Han Solo as Star-Lord because Star-Lord is basically a goofier version of Han Solo, right? Yeah. So, you know, and this is where maybe the Lord Miller stuff really like kind of rubbed Kathleen Kennedy the wrong way. Was it starting to emulate someone else that was not Han Solo? Han Solo is not Star Lord. Han Solo is a legitimate warrior who is wisecracking, is funny, but he's not like goofy, stupid funny. Yeah, and, honestly, I was actually surprised how unfunny this this movie was. And, in a good, yeah, in a, in a good way. Like it wasn't bad. It was just I expected more jokes, especially knowing that it was originally supposed to be directed by Lord and Miller, who were known for their comedies. Um, and especially even with like as many jokes as they've managed to cram into like the previous movies, like I felt like I laughed more at, you know, the force awakens than I did at, um, you know, at solo, which is surprising because it was definitely like of all the new movies, like under, uh, you know, sort of the Disney era, like it was definitely the most overall lighthearted one, but the one that was the least like laugh out loud funny, in my opinion, I, I'll disagree. Because I thought there was a lot of – now, everyone laughs at different things. And I have – laughter can mean just, like, I, for me, adorable moments sometimes, mm -hmm. to be honest. But, like, for me, I felt I laughed out loud. like And then again, not like, <laughs> like, like that laugh. It wasn't like, you know, that kind of laugh out loud. But I, I would chuckle out loud a number of times more than anything in The Force Awakens or Last Jedi or Rogue, obviously Rogue One. Rogue One didn't have a lot of humor. No, 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 <laughs> no. But here's the thing, though. Like, and again, Solo got, a from me, got a lot of smiles and a lot of chuckles and a few laugh-out-loud moments. But I laughed harder at Rogue One, like the scene when they're putting the bag over Cheerer's head and he goes, are you yeah. kidding me? I'm blind! Or, let's, you know, let's, some let's, of K2's let's, lines. There were, there were parts like that that I laughed harder at than I laughed at any anything in solo yeah I, I guess for me is they maybe have more like i don't know i thought that joke was great too but i felt like the jokes were more subtle how about that like they weren't they weren't again they weren't trying to hit you over the head with like here's mm -hmm. a joke it was like he ripped some, it's like he ripped someone's arms off and the funny part about it was he did that but then hans pissed off because yeah it was the one thing he needed the student yeah. he needed or like again, like there's just humor like that. It's all over solo where it's a little more subtle. It's not like, and I love that about it. Like, mm -hmm. so again, it, it felt more like Han. It felt more like when Han's like, you know, when, when, uh, when Luke tells, ask Han, what do you think about it? And he goes, try not to kid. Like, it's just like, you know, the little stuff like that, Alden got, and they did a great job of explaining that. Mm-hmm. 
No, I would that, agree. And and yeah. again, I I didn't think it was a detriment to the movie. I didn't come away disappointed that it wasn't as funny as I thought. It was kind of just an afterthought. Like I enjoyed the movie, and then when I was thinking about it afterwards, I was like, you know, I actually think I thought that was going to be funnier, but like I'm okay that it wasn't. Because again, it was still just it was very lighthearted and fun, and I got a lot of you know smiles and chuckles and you know small bits of laughter here and there, rather than just like insert joke and you know everybody's rolling on the floor laughing. Yeah, and I felt that particular instance too with Chewie ripping the guard's arms off. They could have easily tried to make. I mean, that, that was a reference in itself, but they, I'm glad they just kept it there because I felt if certain movies they probably would have went overboard and like Han would have said. Oh man, I sure hope I don't get on your bad side when we're playing a game or something like mm-hmm. that to call to a new hope when he loses. Han says that when C3PO beats him. So just the right amount of reference and Han's reaction, yeah, was great in that he was more upset about <laughs> the disguise now that he has to wear the Chewie ripped off the one that would have fit him instead of making another callback. What they did was just perfect. Yeah, definitely. And totally fit that Han and Chewie dynamic so well, yep. too. Because, you know, there's so many times when they argue and bicker over little things and, you know, like the, the Kanji Club scene in The Force Awakens when he's like, you know, oh, yes, I do, every time. And, you know, they're always just kind of bickering over stuff. Um, so I thought it was, you know, that was fun. Um, and then, of course, you know, in all the chaos of this breakout and everything, they make their way into the mines. They find the coaxium. Um, Chewie splits off from Han to go uh, save some Wookiee uh you know, some Wookiees who are being enslaved and are being, you know, sort of tortured um, by their captors as everybody else is trying to escape. And so Chewie gets his kind of heroic action moment as he gets to um, save some of his people. Um, And then, of course, they help in the breakout and they're defending Han as he's getting out with this shipment, Um, which all kind of leads to another big cool action sequence outside where um, they're all kind of having a shootout with all the, uh, the guards and everybody there. Um, from the mines as they're trying to get back to the Falcon and, you know, they load the fuel in and you got L3 leading the droids and it's just kind of chaos. And, you know, there's blasters and explosions flying everywhere. Um, you know, they're, they're loading the fuel up. You got Chewie and the Wookiees, you know, defending everybody. Um, and then like you guys were talking about earlier, this is where, um, you know, L3 kind of goes out in a blaze of glory, um, right kind of in the, the heat of the battle too. And she's talking about like, oh, I'm so glad we took this job and, you know, this is awesome and I'm glad I got to free the droids and everything. And then she gets shot down and it's kind of sad. And then of course, Lando, who is, you know, kind of taking cover with Han by the Falcon and they're kind of having their cool moment of being back to back and, you know, just shooting down everybody, um, suddenly he gets emotional and just runs into the middle of the battle to try to save his droid and he gets shot. Um, and then, so of course, you know, Han kind of saves the day and, um, you know, gets them out of there with Chewie, you know, Chewie's like carrying Lando. Um, and then Kira comes out with some grenades. It's funny cause she, you know, they, they got the, uh, I don't even know exactly who it is they're fighting, but whoever, you know, is manning the, the spice mines there. Um, you know, the Pikes guards and everything. Um, they've got these big turrets and Han and Lando are trying to like shoot the guys that are getting on the turrets before they can use them to, you know, damage the Falcon. And then at the end, Kira comes out with these grenades and just like blows up everybody. And it reminded me of the scene from uh, Infinity War where um, Okoye is like, why was she up there the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, a good, that's a good point. That's a good point. I... I will say that scene was kind of weird where she just goes Aah! and throws the grenades or the thermal detonators, if you will. That was 
was kind of interesting. It it didn't throw me out like where I'm like this is ridiculous and I thought it was bad, but it's, it was kind of weird how it happened. I will say that. Yeah, I like the scene too. Another cool action bit that we got, and I thought this was going to be the climactic battle sequence too. And again, I was wrong, <laughs> but it was in the middle. But yeah, it was, like I said, tons of chaos going on. I just love seeing Wookies in action. I just love the moment where Chewie has to, you know, decides he has to save his people, put them over the mission, even though Becca specifically tells them don't improvise anything, stick to the plan. But you know, this is obviously more important to Chewie, especially after hearing the line of him wanting to find his family slash tribe to look for him and mm-hmm. so it was a great moment seeing Chewie free some Wookiee slaves and seeing Wookiees in action is always great and just using their brute strength too where you know Han gave him that blade which is another great moment too again establishing that close relationship that's building over the course of this movie Han could have just went away and let Chewie handle it himself but he stopped for a moment handed him the weapon to make sure he wasn't totally defenseless and so but just seeing the Wookiees you know, just use a brute strength to take down these guards is really cool to see. And in comparison to, you know, we got an action scene with them in Revenge of the Sith, but they had their weapons and their vehicles. But just seeing Wookiees use a brute strength was pretty cool to see. And then the moment I was looking forward to just based off the trailer, where I originally thought where Chewie puts his head on the other Wookiee that he was saying goodbye to his wife or a member of his family there. But um, in the mm-hmm. scene, you know, it still represents that where Chewie is he's freed his Wookiee, uh, the, the fellow members of the same species who were slaves, and he can easily go off with them, you know, to either help them out or just to be, you know, with the same species, even though it's maybe not be his immediate family that he's looking for. It's I'm sure it'd still be an important thing for him to be with some more Wookiees. But again, that relationship he's building with Han here, going to save him and Lando in this moment, making that hard choice, I thought was a great moment for Chewie. And uh, that moment where I was looking forward to, you know, him saying goodbye to his family or his wife to go off with Han. Um, even though we didn't get that, it still kind of had that same feeling to me where Chewie is making that hard choice here, saying goodbye to a fellow Wookiee to, you know, to be, uh, to help Han, Han here in this situation, making the choice uh, with Han over the, the Wookiees that he's here, here uh, that he's with here. Again, just establishing that close relationship we come to know and love in the original movie just these little things that are sprinkled out throughout the course of solo with Han and Chewie that just does an amazing job with that and I thought this sequence here was just another example of showing that relationship building here so yeah uh, just on a lot of levels I like this uh, skirmish on Kessel here some fun references and easter eggs that we talked about some cool action and then some emotional beats here with Chewie so I really liked it a lot by the way that Wookiee looked like a troll from Willow (laughs) Which was ironically uh, directed by Ron Howard. I thought it looked like something out of Planet of the Apes. I thought more so too of Planet of the Apes, but when you said that, Paul, I was like, yeah, I could definitely see that too. And I think it was probably more intentional on the Willow front because of Ron Howard. <laughs> it looked a lot like that troll, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> I guess we could just safely say just Wookiees on Kessel just look different when you have this and the Rebel Wookiees. I mean, <laughs> they just don't Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, in the in the in the in the guide, there's like a blonde Wookiee, and it looks weird. Really? Yeah. Get that guide. <laughs> that is weird. Um, yeah, because we did it. Then definitely didn't notice any blonde Wookies running around in the movie. That's for sure. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, although, I mean, there were a few running around that we never really got a good look at, but I definitely don't remember any being blonde. Um, but yeah. So, like you were saying, cool to see Wookies in action. Um. And then, you know, they all escape, they get on the Falcon, they take off. And now we get to finally see the infamous Kessel Run, um, 
Yes, Which is do. sort of the the big, I mean, kind of the climax of the movie, I guess. Although there's kind of yeah. another climactic moment after this, but um, I guess the last big action set piece of the movie. Yeah, um, and so of course they're you know they're leaving Kessel. They've got the. Uh, coaxium, which is like a ticking time bomb at this point. Um, you know, and this is the part where as they're flying away, like L3 is dying in Lando's arms and, uh, you know, Lando's injured. And so he lets Han go ahead and take the controls. Um, and Han's flying the Falcon and taking them out of there. And uh, no sooner that do they take off from Kessel than they run into an Imperial blockade. Um, and man, just that visual, and we saw this in the trailer already, but just of like the Star Destroyer flying through the, the big sort of tunnel in the clouds, yeah. um, of that giant, you know, nebula or whatever that was surrounding Kessel was just so cool. Um, and I love the music cue from A New Hope that they used to show the Empire like they always did in A New Hope too. that thing. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. That's a really, really good cool. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, was cool. That was a good callback. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then, of course, Han, you know, from his time in the Imperial military, he's like, oh, I think we'll be fine. Like, you know, I, I've been with these guys. I know there's no way they're going to send out a TIE fighter just to chase down one lone little freighter. And no sooner do the words leave his mouth than a squadron of, like, six TIE fighters comes after him. <laughs> um, and so he's like, all right, well, we're going to have to take a shortcut. And basically, and we didn't really talk about this at first, but when they were first coming to Kessel, like we said, there's this giant nebula around it with you know these tunnels or whatever that are sort of mapped out through it with like lights guiding the way and it's like the only safe way to traverse through it because there's all this unmapped territory and they talk about these giant um i forget what they call them like it's something that sounds like iceberg but it's something else berg and he said they're basically just these giant mineral formations like almost the size of planets that are just constantly crashing into each other and it's like impossible to plot a course through there um but Han is like, well, we got to outrun the Empire, so I'm going to go off the beaten path. And he just turns and veers off into this cloud of whatever. And, you know, so now the TIE fighters are chasing him and you got rocks and asteroids and all this kind of stuff, you know, debris. And just, you know, they're in uncharted territory now. Um, and he's like, well, how can we find a way through it? And, you know, Lando had said earlier that L3 had like the most advanced navigational system and you know the the best navigational database that he had ever seen um so they basically unplug l3's you know memory core and plug it into the falcon's hyper or uh navic computer um and just like you guys were talking about kind of integrate her with the ship so that um they can use her her memory and her information to be able to plot a course through all this stuff um and so, of course, while they're doing that, we get just, you know, a cool action scene where they're, you know, having this chase with the TIE fighters. through. It's basically like Asteroid Field 2.0. Um, you know, Beckett goes and mans the uh, the turret, which at this point only has one gun. It's not, you know, the quad cannon that we all know and love. But still just hearing the sound effect of that gun firing again was cool. Um, you know, we get the moment where Han's like, all right, we got to divert power to the shields. And Kira's like, yes we do and she clearly doesn't know how to do it and then you know Chewie just reaches over and flips all the switches and Han's like how do you know how to fly 190 years old you look great um and so Kira's like all right Chewie you take over and Chewie jumps in the seat and you know that's kind of like the first moment that we see Han and Chewie as pilot and co-pilot together for the first time um okay I have to say really fast Kyle that moment when they sit down together for the first time and the star Wars theme plays all three times I get emotional and I'm not joking. 
I don't know what it is. No, I mean, I'm right there with you, Paul. I maybe don't get emotional, but I get chills every well, time I've seen it. Because... Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe go ahead. A, I'm sorry. Maybe a mo- It's like, I don't like... The first time I for sure almost like, wept. Like, I almost teared up. Like, I was like... <gasps> like, in the second... I mean, every time it gets a little less emotional, but I definitely, for the first... I can tell... I can promise you, I got kind of emotional when the first... I That first time I saw that, I was like... Whoa, boy. And the second time, it was closer. Third time wasn't as bad, but I still, like, I get, like, like I get, like, an, an emotional jolt when I see that. And the music plays, because it's that music. When they sit down together for the first time in the Falcon and that music plays, you're like, it's 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 magical. It's a magical moment. It's a mm-hmm. really under, it again, really is. There, no. there is so many underrated moments in this movie that one is one of the most underrated and it, it it shouldn't be but it is it's it's a gr- it's really is a great moment yeah, i couldn't agree with you more on that one paul i mean the whole kessel run sequence is my favorite sequence of the movie for a lot of reasons but that moment right there is what puts it over the top it's just really special i mean we we'll use the right word magical right there because i love how it all built up to it and it how it happened was really cool too where han tells kira you know i could use a co-pilot because this is kind of what Han has been hoping for ever since they were together on Corellia. Just the two of them flying out on adventures in their own ship, even though it's not their ship yet. But Han's the pilot. Kira's the co-pilot. This is everything that Han want, wanted in life. But, you know, once that moment happens where Kira didn't know what to do, I just love how Chewie just steps in right away in that moment where he t- sits in that co-pilot seat. The music, like you said, Paul, and that look that they give each other is like, oh man, this is this is it right here. This is Han and Chewie's first flight on the Falcon together as pilot and co-pilot, and it is amazing. So mm-hmm. yeah, that moment was really special. And just the Kessel Run in general, great action. The, the visuals that you were describing, Kyle, that's what I really liked about it too. I've been saying for a long time now, oh, I want to see like a Nebula style space sequence in a live action movie. And right now, this is the closest that we get because it looks really cool when you're in that type of atmosphere. So invading the TIE Fighters was a really cool sequence. How Han took out the last one was really cool, kind of putting down the landing gear and going onto that that meteor and just scraping up the surface of it and pretty much freezing the TIE Fighter. (laughs) We saw that little shot inside the TIE Fighter cockpit of him freezing up and then crashing. Then also getting a Back to the Future 3 reference there was pretty cool. <laughs> when Han was saying, referencing a racer he knew named Needles. And like how John Kazan confirmed that was the Back to the Future 3 reference. So a lot of cool stuff in this whole sequence in there. From an action standpoint, a little Easter eggs there. But none more significant that makes it more special than that moment when Han and Chewie are flying the Falcon together for the first time. And they immediately capture that symmetry, chemistry of them flying together as you did in the new hope but just felt like you were seeing it for the first time again i attribute that to the performances from both alden ehrenreich and uh junis who i'm always mess up his last name <laughs> the new actor is playing chewy but they just did a great job of embodying you know the specialness of seeing han and chewy play pilot the falcon for the first time i absolutely love this whole entire sequence Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you get the musical cues, which are just the icing on the cake. Like when Beckett goes down to the turret to, you know, take out the Tie Fighters, it plays, um, you know, the uh, the Tie Fighter attack theme yeah. from A New Hope. And then as they're, I think, right when he has the moment where he flips the Falcon and it like knocks the Tie Fighter next to him into the asteroid, they start playing the um, the asteroid field theme from Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. That's right. So just some, you know, 
neat little uh, nostalgic cues there with the music and everything. Um, and then, of course, they make it past the TIE Fighters. You fly, you know, they fly into like a giant space tentacle monster which i actually thought was really cool because it reminded me reminded me of something out of clone wars or rebels where you had um you know like they introduced so many weird creatures that just live in space like whether it was the uh the big i forget what the name of the creatures actually are i just know ahsoka calls them gas gulpers in um the nebula in that early the early clone wars episode where they're flying the y-wings um and then of course in rebels you got freaking like space whales that can fly through hyperspace and so the fact that there's just this giant monster living out in space feeding on who knows what um and of course it's obviously kind of a callback all the way back to empire strikes back with the giant space slug too like you know space is just weird and full of weird monsters and creatures and stuff and so the fact that this thing just lives in the middle of this nebula um i thought was just you know a a cool thing for them to run into and then of course they get to uh the maw uh you know, gravity well thing, which was another cool callback because um, I don't know if you guys remember all the EU stories where they've talked about the Maw installation where um, basically the Empire had like a secret laboratory that was near the spice mines of Kessel. And again, I mean, in, in the original EU, the Kessel run was basically you had to chart a course through all these black holes and stuff. Um, that was like super dangerous and the empire built a secret installation like inside the this cluster of black holes just because it was really hard to reach um and it was called the maw and the the research base was called like the maw installation and i think actually in the old eu like this probably isn't canon anymore but that's where they built the first death star um just because it was so yeah in eu Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, obviously now with, you know, Rebels and Rogue One and stuff, I don't think, you know, they're going by that anymore. But um, so it was cool just to get that reference, you know, for them to mention the Maw. And even though we only saw one black hole, um, it was still I mean, that was just a really cool visual sequence, seeing the monster get pulled into it. And then, um, you know, the the part where Beckett goes and gets just a drop of that, um, you know, super like unrefined hyperfuel that they've got and drops it in the Millennium Falcon's core right as they're about to get sucked into the black hole and the engines kick in and they just zoom out of there. Um, it was just a really cool moment. So, um, you know, definitely just th- this was another one of those parts of the movie where just everything was firing on all cylinders. Like the performances were great. The visuals were great. The action was great. And we finally get to see like Han and Chewie in the Millennium Falcon, like the whole thing that we, you know, came into this movie wanting to see. So it was really fun. Yeah, I also like Lando in this sequence, too. Just his reaction to everything going wrong. His ship is being torn apart. <laughs> it's getting destroyed. Kara uses one of his capes to put out a fire. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. a vintage cape. It's like his reaction to this, this trip was not going as he expected and causing so much more trouble than probably thought it was worth. So I thought this was a, more of a humorous sequence for Lando here, just seeing his reaction to everything going on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. All right, and I know we're we're kind of we're kind of busting through this because we're we're running low on time, but really fast, I wanted to say, did the Kessel Run live up to your expectations, knowing how we built it up all these years? Because for me, again, just like Chewie meeting Han Solo for the first time, and it totally it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. It one hundred percent worked, and I loved what we got. I think the same applies for the Kessel Run. Like, I loved it. I thought it was great. It wasn't what I expected. It was a great. I thought it was done really well, and I love the fact that it wasn't what I expected and or wanted necessarily. Yeah. No. Oh, go ahead, Tim. 
that was going to say I totally agree. I lived up to my expectations. And I'm kind of surprised I've seen a little bit of a mixed reaction towards it where it didn't live up to the hype for some people and for others it did. But I can definitely say it did for me on a lot of levels like we talked about. And I just think with what they went through, you can see why it means so much to Han, like to brag about it in A New Hope and then to make sure Ray got it right that it was 12 park sets and not 14. <laughs> so what this whole ordeal that they had to go through to get out of it, you can see why he's proud that him and the Falcon made the Kessel run. So yeah, I think it definitely lived up to the hype and, you know, having over 40 years of wondering what it was actually going to be. And now that we got it, I think it was fit perfectly. Yeah, I think, I mean, I could maybe see why some people are slightly disappointed. Um, like I liked it, but it, I maybe was expecting more from it. Like I was, I was kind of thought it would be longer because really all it was was like a chase scene with some TIE fighters and then an escape from one monster and one black hole and then just plotting a, a hyperspace course through the rest of it. And then it was just like a big light speed jump. Um, but still, I mean, as far as like for an action scene in a movie, I thought it worked really well for us having built it up after all these years as Star Wars fans and picturing like, oh, what was it like for Han to make the castle run? I think I was expecting a little bit more out of it. And again, I was expecting it to be a little bit longer and not just like, OK, some TIE fighters, now a monster, now hyperspace jump through the rocks that are about to crash. Um I mean, it, it felt like they had to kind of abbreviate it a little bit. But as far as the purpose that it served within the movie itself, I think it worked. Um, See, it's funny you say that because when you mention all the things that happened, like that's way more than I expected to be. I kind of figured it would be like this one scenario where Han like had to make it through the Kessel Run because he was being pursued, whether by the Empire or someone else. Or I've heard others say that maybe it was a race. But when you talk about all that they went through in this sequence in the movie, like you mentioned being chased by TIE fighters going through that asteroid field and the monster and the maw, like that's enough <laughs> to warrant it being a big ordeal for them to, you know, to have it warrant the history, I guess, that came with it once we first heard it in A New Hope. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess if anything, it's more like, I mean, because he puts such a big emphasis on like, oh, we completed the castle run in 12 parsecs. And if you think about, so we know a parsec is a measurement of distance, not time, even though the way that it was first brought up in A New Hope, it makes it sound like it's time or speed or whatever. And it's like, we probably saw the first, I don't know, two parsecs as far as like him evading the TIE fighters and stuff. And then he just like hyperspace jumped the rest of the way. Um, so I know that's being super nitpicky, but I'm saying like, maybe that's what, you know, some people's issues are like, you wanted to see him actually fly the entire way out of it instead of just being like, oh, okay, we'll just like close the gap and, you know, just jump once we make the hyperspace calculation. But again, like we didn't really know exactly what it was. And so yeah. for me, I'm, I'm not disappointed. I'm not, I'm just not like, oh, this is everything I thought it was going to be. It's like, after the fact, I'm like, I'm not really sure exactly what I thought that was going to be. It's it's not exactly what I pictured, but I like what it was, if that makes sense. I didn't like absolutely love it. I'm not like, oh, that was, you know, mind blowing or it was, you know, exactly what I wanted. I'm just like, it was good. I liked it. I got you. And it's yeah. just glad to know exactly what it is now, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we could know, mm -hmm. you know, picture it in our heads when we hear it mentioned now in the other movies. Yeah. And I love when they, they get back to uh, the planet where they've got, you know, they're going to refine the... Um, the hyperfuel and stuff before it blows up and they're like all right we got the stuff offloaded we're all safe now and han and chewie are talking and he's like 
hey, we just made the castle run in 12 parsecs. And Chewie, you know, says something yeah. to him. He goes, not if you're round down, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like... A great joke, by the way. Yeah. No, it was so great. Because also it kind of tied into, uh, you know, The Force Awakens and where, he, you know, Ray thinks it's 14. He's like, hey, it's 12. It's like he's now kind of going more by reputation than by what it actually was. Because for mm. all we know, it might've been closer to 14 or at least 13, but he's like, no, this is the ship that made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs TM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that makes it much more awesome when he says that now you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so, but I love it because that's totally Han. Like it's mm -hmm. one of those things that kind of subverts your expectations a little bit, but it's not like, I'm, you know, I'm not disappointed. Like, oh man, he didn't actually make it in 12 parsecs. Are you serious? It's like, no, that's totally the kind of thing that Han would fudge a little bit and then just brag about. Totally. Yeah. I love that. So, I, though I will say I do that final exchange. Well, not the final of the movie, but what I'm sure they thought was going to be final Lando and Han, just that look on Lando's face. When you see the Falcon <laughs> in the shape it's in, when it crashed on that planet, it was it's Severine, if I remember the name right. Yeah. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing it right. But just how nice the Falcon looked when we were first introduced to it, introduced to it in the movie, and then to see how beat up it is and looks more like the Falcon we see in the original trilogy. But look, at, now that the escape pods were out in the front, to because I didn't think that's where the escape pod door. That's what maybe they announced it earlier, or there was some something revealed that. The front, that gap that was in the Falcon, how there was no gap in the early design, that it was the escape pods. I didn't realize that going oh, in. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> see, I guess because in the in in the Last Jedi, like we see where the escape pod comes out of when yeah. Ray takes mm -hmm. off, and I just assumed it was coming from the same spot. I thought that I I just thought they lost the front part of the Falcon from the monster like smashing the front no. of it off or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally yeah. didn't realize that was the escape pod. That makes sense though. Yeah. Well, well, hold on. It wasn't in the. From what I understand, it's not even the real escape pod because escape pods are in the back. That's something that Lando added as an additional. Right. Ship. Yeah. And he says something about like I added an escape pod or something like that. Right. Right. right and right. so that was the one that Han, you know, jettisoned. Well, really. Yeah. Well, here's what I'm wondering. Remember in A New Hope when he said several of the escape pods have been jettisoned. I wonder if. If that's a reference to that, or are there additional escape pods in? Well, obviously there is because Ray gets shot at one in in the Last Jedi. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, since I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be. I think that's the only time those escape pods were there in this movie. I don't think Han ever put them back because in A New Hope, I mean, we never the ship obviously looks like how it did at the end of this movie with that with that gap in there. So. Mm -hmm. I'm figuring that that was the only time the Falcon had those escape pods was when Lando put it in there. At least that's what I think. Yeah, but probably. Yeah, just that whole interaction with Lando and Han there where Han's like, like puts his arm on his shoulder, real proud of himself, and Lando's all like, I'm going to be in my ship. I'm going to wait for Mike. Like, he emphasizes my ship. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm going to be in my ship waiting for you to bring me my share. Yeah. <laughs> and I think before, no, he says, before he says that, he just says, I hate you. And then yeah. Han says, I know. Oh, yes. Yes. That so, was also again, perfect. Great line. So good. <laughs> I hate you. He goes, I know. Like, his, yeah. the, his delivery of I know is nothing obviously like the the Harrison Ford one, but it's so freaking perfect. But it was, so yeah, it, the, the thing that was perfect about it is that it almost was like, like I wasn't 100% sure if that was supposed to be like a reference to the I love you, I know. Like, I mean, it was. 
but it also just felt like a natural line of dialogue. You know what I mean? Like, because mm-hmm. it could have totally felt like, oh my gosh, they just had to shoehorn a reference into like Han's most famous line. But it felt like something that he totally would have like naturally said to Lando right there. And it just happened to be like, oh, and that also was kind of like a throwback to what he said to Leia. Yeah. And it, I liked how they put it there, too, because they really could have made it on the nose where he said, I know Takira in some type of dialogue they were mm-hmm. having. And that's that's where you probably go, oh, OK, they really had to throw it in there. But the fact that it was used here with Lando in kind of a playful manner and after he says, I hate you. Yeah, <laughs> it was used perfectly in that instance. And just Lando walking away, pointing that finger like mm-hmm. <laughs> in the back of his head as he's going to the Falcon. It was just so good. And yeah, just again, I'm probably going to say this more and I've said a lot around this podcast is another moment that makes you really appreciate and just enjoy more of the rep or these characters when we see them in the original trilogy where you can call back to moments like this. Just, this was another one of those moments for me. I just loved it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then, of course, you know, they're thinking everything's all good. We've got our uh, our coaxium, and then who is waiting for them there but Enfys Nest, um, who put a homing beacon on the Falcon earlier. Um, they have another confrontation with her, and I love the moment where, you know, it's, it's just Han and Beckett and Chewie, um, and they're surrounded by Enfys and her whole gang, and Han, Han kind of steps up, and he's like, you know what, we got one advantage over you. You see that ship down there? It's loaded with 30 armed mercenaries just <laughs> waiting for us to give the signal, and as soon as I give the call, they're going to come out and surround you, and you know, you're going to have nothing. And then th- the Falcon takes off, and he just steps back and says to Beckett, he's like, sorry, I'll, I'll let you do your thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the typical Lando is getting out of, you know, <laughs> this first, I wouldn't say a betrayal, but, you know, his first time looking out for himself and leaving on out to dry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, this is also where we get the reveal of who Enfys Nest actually is. Um, we find out that she's not actually this vicious marauder, but um, that I like to think of her as space Robin Hood. Like, She's got this band of thieves, but they're all kind of outcasts and, you know, the the oppressed people of the galaxy that have either been wronged by the Empire or by all these crime syndicates and cartels and stuff that Han's getting all involved with. And so they think that she's the bad guy when really, like, they're kind of working for the bad guys and she's trying to be the good guy. Um, And, you know, she's breaking the law and stealing stuff and whatever, but she's trying to do it to help people in need. Um, And so she kind of convinces Han to, uh, you know, not give all the coaxium to Dryden Voss. Um, and Han goes to Beckett and he's like, all right, you know, we can't do this, right? Like we got to come up with a new plan. And Beckett's like, you know what? I don't want any part of this. Like, good luck. I'm out. Um, and so Han and, uh, Chewie and Kira and Enfys come up with a plan for, you know, what they're going to do about Dryden Voss. Uh, so he comes back with his ship. They go, Han gives him the coaxium which dryden immediately is like oh this is amazing like how did you make it look so real because i know this is fake because i know your plan because i have an informant and in comes beckett who uh you know we find out is um you know again the the mentor with a not so heart of gold because he's got his own motives and he's you know kind of the the shady double dealer and whatnot and he had told he, he tells Han he's like i told you earlier you know you can't trust people and you know all this he's like yeah but you also 
told Chewie that people are predictable. Um, and so they have this whole back and forth where, like, you know, you think that Dryden and Beckett have outsmarted Han, but then it turns out Han's really outsmarted them. Um, and Dryden sends his gang out to kidnap Enfys, and, you know, he's got her guys all surrounded, but then you find out it's really just the villagers that are, like, wearing um, her guys' armor and stuff. And so, the you know, then Enfys and her actual guys come out, and they take out all Dryden's guys. Um, which we get a cool another little cameo from uh, Warwick Davis in that scene where he takes out a bunch of dudes with a rocket launcher. Um, and which, just... um, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, um, I I don't have the official guide yet. I'm dying to get I couldn't find it when the day it came out. My Barnes & Noble didn't have it. But I believe that's confirmed in there. And Paul, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, Warwick Davis's character is the same character Weasel from The Phantom Menace it is. sitting yes. by Watto. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Might as well make another small connection there. Yep. And from, have him be that same character. Like, why not? From Padre Spectator to Freedom Fighter. Yep. And um, also, too, Paul, can you confirm, too, in the, from the official guide, if that is two tubes from Rogue One? Or is it. That's one. Yes. That's, it's not. I don't think it's. I haven't looked in the, the thing, but Leland Chi's been on Twitter and said it's one of the two tubes. He doesn't okay. know which one. Okay, that's cool, too. <laughs> yeah. The fact that. Because it would make sense, because I would. I will get into this maybe a little later, but I'll just mention it briefly right now. Just again with Enfys Ness and her Marauders of Cloud Riders, like the two, one of the two tubes was there, and it just makes you think if they had any meetings with Saul Guerrera and his band of rebels, and if he met one of them, that's why he decided to join. There had to be some reason that made him join Saws, whether like disagreements, mm. um, ideologies, or Enfys Ness's Cloud Riders got wiped out and they, he had to go to Saw. So again, just a lot of fascinating intriguing stuff and story possibilities that have been set up with Enfys Ness here again which we'll go into a little bit later at the end but just cool that they're making these small connections with these characters here uh being the same which I love yeah and can I just say how cool it was that one of her gang was a Rodian yep <laughs> like, a female orange Rodian oh I didn't even realize it was a female but the orange I, I color guess it was is, cool. yeah yeah oh I agreed um yeah, so honestly, I that was one of the things that I really loved about this movie was just the blend of old and new alien characters. Um, mm -hmm. Like, we got some Twi'leks, we got some Rodians, we got two tubes, um, we got Wookiees, obviously, but we also had some really cool new, uh, you know, new alien designs, whether it was, like, Lady Proxima or um, even, like, the fuzzy face guys that were, like, Dryden Voss's guards. Um, of course, seeing one of the Pikes again, like, it was just, it, it was a really cool blend of old and new and, you know, with the alien and creature designs and stuff. So I love that. Um, but then of course this all sets up like the final showdown here between, um, Han and, uh, it's Han and Kira and Dryden because the first thing that happens once, uh, all of Dryden's guys get taken out by Enfys, um, then Beckett shoots Dryden's guards in the room and, uh, Dryden's like, Beckett, what the heck are you doing? And he's like, He's like, oh, he says, I'm thinking and I like to be the only one in the room holding a blaster while I'm doing it. I thought that was a great line. Um, yeah. And then he basically takes Chewie at gunpoint and forces him to leave with all the coaxium. So it's like he had gone back to Dryden Voss and was like, I'm going to be loyal to my boss. And now he's like, you know what? Screw it. I'm out for myself. Um, so he takes the coaxium and leaves with Chewie, um, leaving just Han and Kira and Beckett um, alone in the room. And they you know, fight it out. Um, Han's going for his blaster. Beck, uh, Dryden has these cool little vibroblade knife things. 
Um, and it ends up being Kira who's the one that gets the upper hand on him. And the, the whole time, you know, you've been wondering kind of like where do Kira's loyalties really lie? Like, is it with Han or is it with Dryden? Um, and right when you think she's about to betray Han, she, you know, takes a sword from one of Dryden's fallen guards and it looks like she's about to stab Han with it. And she turns on Dryden instead and they end up having a little uh, skirmish and... It's cool because her sword is like split down the middle and so Dryden tries to stab her and she gets his blade like caught in the middle of her sword and she, you know, spins it away from him and like stabs him with his own knife that's like caught in her sword. Um, so kills him, fights over, um, and, you know, she has a moment with Han where he's like, hey, you know, it's over, you know, you're free of these guys, we can finally run away together. Um, and she's like, okay, well, you know, go save Chewie. He needs you. And the one thing that was cool that we didn't even mention, Dryden Voss's little, uh, office or whatever had so many little Easter yeah. eggs just sprinkled throughout the background. You know, just, he, I mean, he obviously is a collector of artifacts and stuff. And there was like a suit of Mandalorian armor back there. Um, there was some Indiana Jones references where, you know, he had one pedestal that I guess had like the, uh, the idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark on it. And then yeah, also I didn't notice that when I saw the movie, so I gotta look out for that when i see it again yeah it's it's not super clear but like if you're looking for it you can you can tell it's there um because i had people point it out to me too and then i went and saw it the second time i was like oh yeah i think i can see where that is um and there's also like a big skull that kind of looks like the crystal skull and isn't an exact replica of it but i think is kind of supposed to be an homage to it it's um, actually from it's actually a reference to one of the old Han Solo books. I personally haven't oh. read it, but on the cover, that skull is on there. It looks exactly like that. So that's where that one's from. Oh, well, that's cool. Um, also, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but there's also like a pyramid thing that had like a bunch of cylinders around it that I was like, are those lightsabers? Because well, definitely... I'm pretty sure that's a holocron. Well, it looked like a holo- it looked like a holocron, but then it had... Um there were like some other things like surrounding it that were sort of pointing up at it that didn't look like it was part of the same thing. Like they, it looked like Dryden was collecting like ancient lightsabers or something. Um, but anyway, so I mean, among all those other Easter eggs and stuff, there's also like some gems and stuff. And so Kira tells Han like, go, you know, save Chewie. I'll be right behind you. I'm just going to scrown. I'm going to take some of Dryden's stuff because he's not going to need it now and we're going to need some stuff to buy a ship so and you know you see there's like some gems and stuff so you think she's just gonna you know collect um you know valuables for them to you know sell later um so Han leaves um and then things turn sort of ominous and you can see that Kira is not right behind him and instead of going and stealing dryden's plunder like she says she was gonna do she instead takes the ring off his finger and i don't think we mentioned this before but so dryden's crime syndicate is called um crimson dawn and he's already mentioned or you know sort of at least hinted at that he's not the top dog on the food chain because he says something about you know you know who i answer to and he's not going to stand for this like you know something needs to be done about this back when they owed him for the shipment and whatnot um so kira takes the ring off Dryden's finger with the the Crimson Dawn insignia on it goes over to his desk, inserts the ring into a little terminal, and the windows all close. And we're thinking, okay, this is the moment where uh, we're, we're going to find out because it had been teased kind of a couple times throughout. And I don't know about you guys, but I did hear from a couple people that there was like a big surprise at the end of the movie. Um, yeah. 
I went into it knowing there was a big surprise, but I don't know what it is, and I can't wait to find out what it is because I've heard it left people really excited. <laughs> yeah, well, and I it, the weird thing is I had heard that from a couple people at first, but then I also heard from some other people that the like maybe from some of the naysayers that the movie just wasn't that exciting or that the, it didn't really do anything new, that there weren't really any big twists, and so I was like, oh well, maybe it's like not that big a deal. Um, so I wasn't expecting anything like earth shattering, but then especially once we kind of got the indication that Dryden was working for somebody else, I was like, oh, there's probably going to be a cool like cameo thing at the end here. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I was thinking I was leaning towards either like we're going to get another Vader cameo or like maybe it's going to be Jabba or maybe it's going to be Boba Fett. Um, did you guys have any other possibilities in mind? Yeah, I had Jabba and I had Boba or as far as crime bosses, not Boba, but I had Jabba and I thought maybe another or I, what I also thought, maybe it's a new character they're going to introduce that they're going to like expand on. Mm-hmm. And this is like the first of it, you know, kind of a thing. So I, I went into it hearing about a cameo, but I and and everything, but I don't remember or. I stayed away from spoilers, but I kept hearing about a cameo and I'm like, ah, I'm sure it's just Boba Fett or Jabba. Cause they kept talking, they kept referencing that gangster, you know? Mm-hmm. So when Beckett's like, God, gangster putting together a crew, I was like, oh, it's going to be Jabba. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So when she puts her thing in uh, or her ring in, I'd be like, okay, here comes Jabba. And then it wasn't, I'm like, oh, who's this? Yeah. I went in thinking possibly Boba Fett, he'd be the most likely one they'd want to set up and especially on that same day where we got the news of James Mangold and the Boba Fett movie from the Hollywood Reporter I thought okay it's probably Boba Fett then because they're probably going to tease up what they want to do next for the next standalone film or even possibly I think maybe they tie in Obi-Wan in there somewhere maybe Hmm. at the end of the film where Han goes to Tatooine to meet up with Jabba we'd see something with Obi-Wan or Obi-Wan looking on and throwing the fact that Ewan McGregor was at the premiere, right? Sometimes I believe who's at the premiere can lead you to you know, some surprises, like Frank Oz going to the Last Jedi premiere when he wasn't at the Force Awakens premiere. I believe he wasn't there, but just little things like that that makes me believe of certain appearances we might see. But those weren't the case, and boy, was I glad to be super surprised of who showed up. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, look. I love Han, I love Chewie, I love Lando. This was my favorite part of the movie, just because <laughs> it blew my freaking mind. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you already know who we're talking about. Spoiler alert if you've made it this far and haven't figured out that we're going to, you know, just blow the lid off this thing yet. But, um, man, just the way it's set up, like Kira puts the ring in, this hologram comes up, and you see it from the side. It's a hooded figure, and you can see, like a metal leg sticking out from under his cloak. And immediately, I mean, first I'm thinking like, oh, is that Vader? Like, no, that definitely doesn't look like Vader's leg. And this guy's wearing a hood. So like, unless he's in a different suit or something like, no, it's not Vader. It's clearly not Jabba. It's not Boba Fett. Maybe this is a new character. Um, I was even thinking it almost looked like a certain Sith Lord from uh, the Old Republic video game. But obviously I was like, well, I know it's not him, but maybe this is like, who is this guy? I was super intrigued. And he just says one thing. He says, you know, he's like, yes, what is it? Or something like that. Um, So I didn't pick up on the voice at all. Kira says, you know, Dryden Voss is dead or whatever. Um, And then he starts talking to her. And I don't know if you guys picked up on like how, how quickly you realized this. But like within a couple lines, I was like, holy crap. I know that voice. That's Sam Witwer. (laughs) 
and we've heard him a lot of times on Rebels and Clone Wars before, and I'm like bouncing in my seat with anticipation at this point until finally, you know, they show the close-up of the face and this hooded figure pulls his hood back, and it's freaking Darth Maul. And <laughs> man, I uh, like I wish like I said, I wish I had been in a, a bigger audience just to get a good reaction of that reveal. But even of like the dozen of us that were there because it was opening night, I could tell there were other star Wars fans there. And even the few of us that were in there were buzzing, but I was just, I like, I could not freaking believe it. I was like, Holy crap. And it was just so cool to see him again. I mean, we know he's still alive during this time period, but I mean, I'm sure I've said this on this podcast before. I never thought we would see Darth Maul in a live action movie again, because the movies are going to have such a bigger general audience than the hardcore fans and the kids that watch, you know, Clone Wars and Rebels. And I thought, like, I'm just like, it would be too big of a jump. There's going to be so many people that are confused and, like, Darth Maul died in The Phantom Menace, so who the heck is this guy? Um, I was like, yeah, we're... And I love the Darth Maul stories that we've gotten in animation, but I was like, they won't do it. We'll never see him in a movie again. Um... And so it didn't even cross my mind here. And when I realized who it was, I was just like, holy crap, they freaking went for it. Like, they did it. And that's him on screen right there. And with Ray Park's face and Sam Witwer's voice coming out of his mouth and with the robotic legs. And then even at the end when he pulls the lightsaber, which, you know, what's funny. The lightsaber was like a totally gratuitous thing. Like, he's not fighting anybody. There's absolutely no reason for him to ignite that lightsaber at the <laughs> end, true. except there... to let the audience know that it's Darth Maul in case there was still any doubt in your mind. It's like, look, he's got a double-bladed lightsaber. So to answer your question, yes, this is Darth Maul. But I didn't even care just because it was so freaking cool to see and to hear the notes of Duel of the Fates playing in the mm -hmm. background. And everything. Oh. like, I was just losing my freaking mind, man. For the record, that that was reshot. I was I was just listening to or read something about uh, yeah Ron Howard, and he did reshoot that and and added the lightsaber because they wanted to add like make it you know it didn't have enough pizzazz, and they and once they added that lightsaber, it all came together for everyone. They all like they loved the added lightsaber. Just mm -hmm. it makes no sense, but. It works. It, it works in Star Wars. It, it, yeah, it's all. You don't need a reason to light a light, you know, light a lightsaber. But here's the one thing in, in universe you could do is maybe she doesn't quite know the Crimson Dawn necessarily, and him turn on that lightsaber makes it's just an intimidation move for her to like let her know like, hey, Kira, I'm like, I'm legit. Like this is mm -hmm. this is this, you're in business. So there is that. I think you could take away from it. So, mm -hmm. um. As far well, as here's the thing, though. Like, I think they had already met before. Like, even though Dryden oh, okay. Voss was like the boss at this point, because first of all, he knows her by name, and he says, "Kira, you and I are going to be working a lot more closely from now on." And that, coupled with the fact that again, she just seems to be hiding something from Han, um, you know, and it's kind of hinted at that, like she has a darker past and that she just can't escape uh crimson dawn like i mean heck after she kills dryden like why not just leave with han like it could just be that she's greedy and she's like hey i want to take his spot but i think it's like even though dryden's dead she knows if she just you know quits and leaves like no she's gonna have maul coming after her so that's why she you know stays um so i, I think she already knows who she's dealing with yeah i i 
I think you can make that argument, but I also think you can make that argument that they didn't. And or if even if they did, maybe that she doesn't know quite the extent of his power. Right. And I think that's what he wanted to do is he wanted to show her, okay, now that you're involved deeper with me, I want to show you the how powerful I am. Not just from a money standpoint, but in a, just a pure power standpoint. Like, I'm not going to let you betray me like Voss, like you just did. Mm-hmm. So I think there is, again, it's a stretch, but I think I, I can buy that. I can buy him because I, I could totally see Darth Maul doing that. He's theatrical. That's what he does. You know, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, it's yeah, it's it's something that I, I could totally buy into. But as far as the scene itself, I had stayed away from spoilers and Holy crap, I wasn't prepared. I I literally, my mouth dropped, and I was on the edge of my seat, and I said, no way. No way. <laughs> because, again, this is the first time that the animation you know, shows have basically been acknowledged by the movies, like directly. Like, mm-hmm. of course, there's like little tie-in materials that you can be like, oh, it's fun. You know, because back in the day, you always had like Lucas would include some things, but he'd do it his way or whatever. This is the first time. It was Saw Gerrera, though, even though it was a much more different Saw than what we saw in the Clone Wars. Mm -hmm. You're you're right to an extent, but what I'm saying is, yeah, you're right. Exactly. It's 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 a much different Saw. This is a direct yeah storyline that is affected by both the Clone Wars. I mean, and Rebels. Think about this. This is basically the sandwich between the both those series. So it's basically identifying both of what they represent and what happens to Maul in both the series. And it, they all directly affect it basically because Sam Whitworth voices him, And the fact that he's got his mental legs, he's in a crime syndicate and like, ugh, it's just, it's crazy what they, what it represents. So it's a big, it's a big deal. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a brilliant move, brilliant move. And, if you go into the deep details of what John and you know Larry Kazan were doing, it was obviously John Kazan who always wanted the boss to be a, a deep cut. Like basically, mm-hmm. he had ideas who he wanted it to be, and it was him working with the story group Canon that helped kind of flesh that out. And he all he liked the idea of Darth Maul, and then he pushed for it. And it was, but it was never. It was a la- it was kind of a last minute thing always of what they were gonna do. It sounds like yeah. it wasn't until the very end they kind of said, you know what, we're gonna do Darth Maul, and they got everyone in. They reshot it again, and it, it was brilliant. I mean, I know a lot of. I mean, just today while we were we were recording, I had a friend of mine uh, from my work uh, uh, message me on Facebook, and and she was like, hey, I have a question about Solo, and she was asking about Darth Maul. She was how I thought this took place when you know. Before, uh, after the Phantom Menace, why is Darth Maul alive? And I, I explained to her, she went, "Oh, so he, so will there be a sequel with him?" I went, mm, "Probably not, but you never know." So there is some confusion, but at the same time, like I don't care. Like I think, yeah, it's it's like it's like a two minute sequence, so the fans are gonna be like, "Huh, it's weird." And by that time, if they hated or liked the movie, that one scene's not gonna, you know, sway them either way. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like. I love the fact they wanted they wanted to give the fans something because I mean there's a lot of us fans who watch the Clone Wars, who watch Rebels, who read the, all the ancillary material, who love it, and I have no problem giving us something like that. That's like a pretty that's pretty big, but it's also something that's not going to you know matter too much to a mainstream audience in the end as far as like I hated this movie or I like this movie. To me, it was a perfect win for the movie and the fans. No. 
you're absolutely right on that, Paul, because first off, my reactions pretty much echoes what you guys were. I just, but I will say it right when I saw his metal legs and I heard his first bit of dialogue, I could tell it was Sam Witwer and I put the two and two together like, oh man, it's Darth Maul. It's Darth Maul. Like I was saying that to myself, probably should have said it in my head, but I was saying it like whispering it. (laughs) (laughs) People sitting close probably heard me, but it was just such a geek out moment. And the reaction in my theater was like, holy crap, like what? Like how is this possible? So there and my first like 7 p.m. showing that Thursday night, there was a lot of people who didn't watch Clone Wars or Rebels, and it's just total shock to them as seeing Darth Maul in there. But Paul, I couldn't agree with you more on what you're just saying there. That how cool it is that they did this for the hardcore fans who watch Rebels and Clone Wars because um, I think a normal movie studio they, to do something like this is very rare. They easily could have said, you know what? It's going to go over people's head. They're going to have too many questions. How did Darth Maul survive? We really don't want to add that as like another question or mystery to the movie that we don't really need. But they didn't do that. They did it for us hardcore fans who absorb all this stuff in Star Wars, the TV shows and comic books and novels and all that stuff. And the fact that they did that is, at least for me, and I'm sure I can speak for you too, guys, hardcore Star Wars fan, it's much appreciated. I hope a lot of other really hardcore Star Wars fans appreciate that they did this and they threw Maul in there because it just makes total sense. Not only is it just cool to see Maul in live action again, but it makes total sense with the story they set up for him in Clone Wars and Rebels, his ties to the criminal underworld and how he could have set up uh, this organization Crimson Dawn. It just makes sense for him to be in it from a narrative standpoint as well. So it just works out beautifully. We get a story point that makes sense for the big Mysterious bad guy of Crimson Dawn, someone that everyone was afraid of, for it to be Maul. And at the same time, it's just great for us hardcore fans to enjoy. So it just works on so many levels. And for me, it just, I'm sure for a lot of people too, just gets you excited about the possibilities and just what is Maul's plan here? Because we know eventually he ends up on Malachor um, looking for that Sith Holocron. But Mm -hmm. does this tie into that? Does he have, like, is this the start of that long game to get to Malachor or? Is Malachor like, kind of like a fallback? His last resort for his plans with Crimson Dawn doesn't fall through. He has to go to Malachor, or is it all tied in? So that's the stuff I'm wondering about right now. Like, what, like what's Maul's state of mind right here? What's he really after at this point in his life? So all that stuff to hopefully, I think we're going to get it revealed eventually, whether hopefully it's in another movie, a sequel or whatever. But we'll get that story told somehow, some way, if it's not in the movie. And I just can't wait to find out what it is. I mean... We thought we were done with Maul and Star Wars after Twin Suns and Star Wars Rebel Season 3, but that's not the case, and I'm fine with that <laughs> to get more Darth Maul, especially if it ends up being in live action like we got here in Solo. I mean, sign me up. It's going to be incredible. So I just can't applaud Lucasfilm, John Kazan, the story group enough for putting Maul in this movie. It was an awesome surprise, but one that just makes total sense. It was amazing to experience that in the theater for the first time. Yeah, definitely, man. And like... Oh, man, like, I just have so many thoughts going through my head still about this. But, I mean, when you're talking about a a potential sequel or, like, where they could go from here with the story, I mean, now that we've seen him in a movie again, I feel like it would be a shame to never touch on that again. Um, And obviously we know where his story ends in Rebels, but now, I mean, seeing him as the head of this Crimson Dawn syndicate, like, we have no idea what he's been up to uh since the end of the clone wars and we have no idea like what 
he's what he's going to continue to do with Crimson Dawn, and like you said, how he gets from here to uh, the point where he's out on Malachor. Um, I would assume that by that point, everything has kind of crumbled from underneath him. Like I think, I think he's probably going to lose the Crimson Dawn Syndicate. You know, that's going to get stripped away from him. He's going to be kind of left with nothing, and that's going to be the point where he's like you know what, screw it, last-ditch effort, I'm going to go in search of some ancient Sith knowledge, and I'm going to try to, you know, I don't know if he was ever actually trying to defeat the Sith, or if he was just looking for a way to find, you know, where Obi-Wan was, but it's like, that's going to be, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of my days just seeking out revenge on the people who've wronged me after I've lost everything, but at this point, obviously, he hasn't lost everything, because he's, you know, got power and influence, and, you know, everything that he was kind of going after in Clone Wars, um, so I would love to see more stories about how he got to this point and then where he goes from here. The question is whether they flesh that out in a potential future solo sequel, because, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the very end of the movie yet, but it definitely leaves the door open for another Han Solo film. Um, I mean, we can just wrap the story up real quick because I want to come back to Maul, but, uh, you know, Han goes and finds Chewie and Beckett. Beckett gives him this lecture about how, oh, you know, you got to learn and, you know, you can't trust people and blah, blah, blah. And Han just shoots him. Um, you know, Han Han got to shoot first, finally. And Beckett's like, oh, OK, yeah, you have learned because I was going to kill you. Um, Which at first I was like, eh, like they're like right first. I was like, oh, they're making a point just to show, hey, Han shot first. There's a scene in the movie now in a Star Wars movie where Han shoots first fans like but seeing it again, I didn't get a, like a cheer in my theater which i was glad because i would have been annoying but because i really don't care about han shooting first or Rito or whatnot mm-hmm. but seeing it again it was more than that from a story kind of like this decision that han's making in his life you know to you know this is what he has to do to survive so i appreciate it more on that front but when i first saw it, i was like eh, is this just is this just another han shoot first reference that they're trying to make but no i come to appreciate it more that it is it- you know more substantial than just that it was never I feel like it was and it wasn't. And I think that it was beautifully done. It was it's actually one of my favorite moments in the movie where again, you know, Beckett's always trying to teach Han and he thinks like, oh, like, you know, I'm this is dumb kid and and Han's learned something from all yeah. this. And and that's what, what I love about it is that it it's in essence of he's a he 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 takes the essence of what we all thought Han was in A New Hope from that film, from that moment of the original Cantina scene, and he embodies it in that one shot because, you know, you have this guy's monologuing, he's telling him that he's dumb, and he doesn't wait. He just shoots him. And it's so it's so perfect. And again, Han at that point has learned so much and come a long way that he doesn't trust anyone. He's not, and he knows when he's been double-crossed, and he's not going to let someone double-cross him again and let him get away with it. Like, he's developed as a character because, uh-huh. you know, he, of, of the whole film. It's a gr- It really is a great moment. Like, I have to, yeah. I'm not just saying that from a, you know, hard shot first. Yes, it references the Greedo scene. It really, and it, and, and, and it is very meta. Like, I get it. But I think it's also a well-written scene as well, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's perfect in that way. And I love Han's response. I mean, again, I, and I'm going to say it right now. I think it's one of Alden's best performances in the movie is that whole scene when he's listening to him and then he just shoots him and his look on his face and how he goes to him. And he's like, he regrets what he had to do, but he's going to do it. That's, and again, that's what, what makes Han solo is that he does things he doesn't want to do, but he'll do it. Mm-hmm. And that 
for good and for bad. And I think that's why I love the character. And I think Alden embodies that so well in that scene. And it really, again, I, you know, when you praised his performance earlier, Kyle, I'm going to praise his performance right here real fast. He did an amazing job in this movie. He blew me away. I had never thought he'd be a great home solo. I didn't think anyone could. And he proved me wrong. And I'm not going to lie. I'm not trying to be dramatic when I say this. This is on par with, with Harrison Ford for me. It really was. I thought he was wow, great. Wow, interesting. It yeah. was fantastic. Like, I, to me, like that, his performance as Han was, it's again, it's more earnest. It's an earnest portrayal of the character because he's learning. And I really feel in the last 20 minutes of the film, Alden Ehrenreich gets, he, because of his his development as the character Han Solo, his, his personality in the film, Alden Ehrenreich morphs into more of the Harrison Ford character at that, in the last 20 minutes. And I think it's such a great, it's written great. Like it's, it's written on the page, He but he does a great job of getting all the mannerisms. And he, and again, it's so subtle and natural that you don't even, again, I think if you watch it again, those last 20 minutes, he morphs into that. And it's not because, you know, it's like a, you know, he's just phoning it in and that's, I got to turn into Han Solo because the page tells me, no, no, no. It just naturally progresses there and it's perfect. Mm-hmm. It's so perfect. When he waves off Emphis Nest about joining the rebellion, it's so Han Solo. Yeah. Ah, so good. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and again, the Beckett scene embodies that. So Alden Ehrenreich, he's got to play Solo again in another movie. He, he's got it. Oh, I, and I think he will. Um, cause also they set up, you know, again, like you were talking about the, um, the kind of tease about, um, Beckett telling him there's a big gangster on Tatooine who's putting a crew together. Um, and then Han says that again to Chewie at the end of the movie, you know, it's like, where do we go next? Oh, well, I heard about this gangster on Tatooine that's putting a job together. So, and we all know that's Jabba. Um, and I, I think there's a very cool potential story there. Um, some cool potential for Boba Fett to appear in a movie, if not in his own standalone film. Um, and you know, just a lot of fun stuff they could do there. So I think that would be cool. And you know what, honestly, like I started hearing rumors and stuff before this came out, like with the, the early reviews and stuff, people were saying like, Oh, it definitely leaves the door open for them to do another solo movie. And because I wasn't like hugely excited about this one, to begin with anyways and then just the fact that you know again we get so much of this content you know with the books and the comics and stuff that's all based around like the original trilogy characters and stuff i was like no i don't want a sequel to the han solo standalone movie like branch out give us more stuff there's so many more stories to tell but after seeing the movie i'm like heck yeah i'm down give me more han and chewy any day um mm-hmm <laughs> Yep. So yeah, I'm totally on board with that. Um, And then, of course, at the end of the movie, he goes and he finds Lando on some other planet gambling in another gambling den. um, And Han, you know, buys his way into another game of Pazak. Um, But this time, or Pazak, Sabak. Pazak (laughs) is the uh, the game from Knights of the Old Republic. Um, I'm going to give you a chance to catch yourself, and you did, so. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, first he kind of pulls the same move that Lando pulls on him in Empire where he yeah, like, acts like he's not happy to see him and you think maybe he's going to punch him or something and then he pulls him in close for a hug but he swipes the card that Lando's got up his sleeve and then he buys his way into the Sabacc game and this time he wins fair and square Lando tries to pull out his cheating card and Han's just kind of looking at him like hey you got everything you need over there buddy yeah. um, <laughs> well, that was great. so you know he, he 
calls him out on that one, wins the Falcon, and then the last shot is just Han and Chewie taking off in the Falcon. And like I said, he talks about going to, you know, meet up with the gangster on Tatooine. Um, and now it's, you know, the two of them taking off in, in the Falcon, which is now Han's. So that was a cool way to end it. Um, you know, like we said, definitely sets up for potential, uh, you know, sequels in the future, which I am totally down for. Um, the whole reason I wanted to get to that, though, going back to Maul, and we should probably wrap this up pretty soon. I could do a whole nother episode on Darth Maul speculation and where they could go with his storyline. Oh, we know you could. <laughs> but, um, you know, just in terms of, like, would they continue that in a Han Solo sequel and have him still be kind of tied into Kira and then her connection to Han and whatever? Or should they just go completely separate and i mean i don't know if they would do a mall solo movie or just have him appear in other stories that take place during that time period i mean there's definitely a lot of potential for crimson dawn to sort of be like a, a, a just a, an element of the story that pops up in different areas um but i just i don't think i want to have maul just be like a recurring villain in a series of solo movies because like, those two characters inhabit completely different worlds. Like, I, I don't think I ever want to see Maul and Han cross paths, especially because in A New Hope, Han's like, I haven't seen anything that makes me think, yeah. you know, believe in the yeah. Force. Um, so unless it just happens to be, like, incidentally, and Han knows that he's this crime lord but doesn't know that, you know, who he truly is, um, like, I, I'm totally fine with those two characters never coming into contact with each other. Um which would be weird to have Maul be like the recurring villain in, you know, in how many ever future Han Solo movies they're going to do um, and never have them actually come face to face. So I would love to see Maul get to step out into the spotlight a bit more in either his own movie or in, you know, some other kind of movie um, dealing with some other characters that can get closer to that it's i almost feel like it's a shame that they already killed him off in rebels because that would have been such a cool storyline for the kenobi film like yeah. and honestly if we hadn't seen like if if twin sons wasn't a thing then i would have seen that and gone that's what the kenobi movie's about yeah, but yeah. now we totally. already know how that ends, and I don't think they're gonna like retrace those steps in the Kenobi movie and just show us the same thing because you would have to introduce Ezra and you know all that kind of thing, and I'm sure they want to tell new stories. Um, so even though it would be really cool, it, it you know it's kind of a shame that that probably won't get to happen in an Obi Wan film. But there's just still endless possibilities out there of what they could do with Darth Maul. Um, and I just, man, I'm still giddy just thinking about seeing him <laughs> on the screen again for the first time. Um, and just, yeah, can't wait to see where they go with it from here. It's a little frustrating to me almost that that Star Wars isn't really doing what Marvel's doing. Like, they don't have a roadmap planned out of, like, everything they're going to do yet. Tell um, me about it. And even the fact that, like, you know, like you were saying, that Maul was kind of a late addition to this. Um, you know, Ron Howard said in an interview that like when he came on board that they had kind of just written this generic boss character in there yep. at the end mm -hmm. and that they knew that they wanted it to be somebody important and that Maul was on a list of candidates. Um, and John Kasdan said that he had been pushing for it really hard. And it's funny because he said he he tried to write the script in a way that at the end people would think that it should be Maul and like think that it was their idea and not that that was what he wanted the entire time. Um 
But then, you know, Ron Howard said when he came on and he saw like sort of who the list of candidates was, that Maul was the one that stuck out the most to him and he thought would make the most sense. So he kind of pushed hard for that, too. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate that Lucasfilm is giving these guys like creative freedom to kind of do what they want over their own movies. But at the same time, I feel like it would be nice if they had kind of like a roadmap planned out. Like, I still kind of wish that they had like the stories mapped out for the sequel trilogy from the beginning instead of being yeah, like, okay, JJ, do whatever you want. Now, Ryan Johnson, take that and run with it and do whatever you want. Like, I think it would have been better to have like a coherent story planned out from the beginning. Um, and same That's thing here. That's a whole here. other podcast. That, that is a whole other podcast. <laughs> but as right. it, as it relates here, I, it's just slightly frustrating that because you know if this was Marvel, like first of all, that totally would have been like an end credit scene because that's kind of what it felt like. Yeah, but you know, it was really totally, cool. But yeah. then you could go on the internet and be like, "Oh, the Darth Maul movie comes out in 2021. Awesome!" But <laughs> <laughs> you know, like with Star Wars, we have no idea what they're doing next. So, um, you know, aside from Episode Nine next year, and then of course we got rumors and speculations about Kenobi movies and Boba Fett movies, and you know, we know who's working on stuff. Um, but, you know, as far as when we'll see Darth Maul again, we have no freaking clue. Yeah, it's I mean, it's exciting at the same time. Like you said, hate the part of not knowing <laughs> where yeah. this is going to go, because it would be nice to know for sure. Yeah, we could expect this fallout from or not fallout, but the continuation of where they left when left things with Darth Maul and Kira. But unfortunately, we don't know. Like I said, I think we're going to find out, but we just don't know in what form and. With the box office numbers for the opening weekend of Solo, doesn't sadly it doesn't make me too optimistic that it's going to be in like in a solo sequel. Even though I would love to see one, but mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting. But like this this movie, I mean, what I love about it so much too is not only just the Darth Maul stuff, but there's so much stuff potential it sets up and stories they can explore. Han and Chewie be joining Jabba's crew for that that job. Han and Chewie maybe looking for. Chewie's tribe and family, Maul and Kira, and then uh, also with Enfys Ness. I mean, I just love what they did with the character. I mean, I was excited to see the character just based on some more cool-looking Star Wars armor, but the background story they created for her, I think they just did a perfect job of just actually having something that combines a cool-looking character with a compelling backstory and something you're excited to see. And the fact that they made her, where she said they're, part of a, their own rebel cell that was just awesome i would loved hearing that because we all know the rebellion started with little factions of rebel cells spread across the galaxy not knowing of each other until they all come together for the alliance so mm-hmm. the fact that we got introduced to a new one and it's based off Enfys ness and her cloud riders i just want to see more of them and that's another thing that made me think man if only rebels was still going on we'd probably get an episode where they meet up with Enthus Ness's rebel cell or just it makes me excited yeah, to see those characters true. again in some way, in some form, knowing that they're probably going to play a part in the formation of the rebellion. I think that's just such a cool story aspect to throw in for this character. I just thought it was going to look cool and just be a small antagonist or thorn in the side for Han and Beckett over the course of the movie and not really factor too much into the grander scheme of things in the Star Wars narrative. But they did it with her and her crew, and I think that's awesome that they did that. So just a lot of exciting possibilities this movie left left me with and on a lot of different for a lot of different characters and a lot of different possibilities. So it's just awesome that it left me with that excitement of so many different ways they can go and explore. That's you know awesome to get in a Star Wars movie. One yeah, thing you definitely. don't 
one thing to not overlook is the next two weeks. There's no big blockbusters coming out for Solo to compete with. It's got two next. The next two weeks are, I think, are, are totally void. If, at least next week. I'm pretty or this week. Yeah. I'm pretty sure next week is totally free too. So, though, if the thing is, if they can get some strong second and third week numbers, they could salvage this honestly. And not, I'm not saying it's gonna not drop like you know, only 10%. It's going to drop considerably, but if it's not like a drastic drop, that means that the there's, you know, there's a good word of mouth going out for this movie. So as far as, far as a solo sequel, I think it's a small possibility, but especially the next two weeks, if it can, if it can do it, if it can, you know, keep the numbers up, we should be able to be okay. Yeah. I, you're right. It has some time to make up for it, but it's going to be interesting to see how it does in its next few weeks. I think the next big one is Incredibles 2, but I'm not sure what exactly that's like next week or the week after. So Yeah, I want to say that's June 11th, maybe? Yeah, so... I'm not sure. But, yeah. This, <laughs> yeah. Um, nothing, you know, immediate, though, like you guys were talking about. But, um... Yeah, well, anyway, I mean, I think we've uh, hit pretty much everything there is to talk about on this, but, <laughs> um, man, it's been fun. And, yes. Um, yeah, definitely enjoyed the movie. Hope you guys all enjoyed it as well. Um, before we wrap up here, Tim, you want to read the, uh, you know, some of our listener responses and stuff? Yeah, we got some responses on Twitter and Facebook, as always. So, first up on Twitter from Sean Brawley at Sean Brawley26. Um, this is going to be everyone's thoughts on the movie, of course. But he says, uh, the first 90% was just good. One moment in the last 20 minutes made the movie for me, though. Something I never thought I would see even live action. It's an, ex- an extreme surprise to tie in with the Clone Wars. And then Omar at Trojan Dude says, went in not really excited or expecting much, and it blew me away. Can't wait to see it again. The whole cast was great. Four stars. I'm rounding down. <laughs> and Michael at Jedi Obi Mike said, fantastic. Fun ride. And the cast did an amazing job. And Damian Richardson at Dave underscore uh, Richo said, I loved it. Can't wait till my friends see it. And it's killing me not talking about it. <laughs> and then Mr. Peace at Mr. Peace said, had my second viewing and I'm really impressed. Perfect casting and some memorable scenes. The soundtrack is superb and we need an Enfys Nest film. And then our buddy Caleb at Caleb underscore Cligan said, that mall scene was a Rogue One Vader scene of Solo. Completely stole the show. And then Brian Braley at Balls in Place says, um, he goes, the longer it goes, the more I miss the force in Solo. It also felt like a lot of setup for sequels. So it's a falling, but maybe I just need to see it again. And hopefully you did get to see it again, Brian, because hopefully uh, it was a better, I know you liked it, but hopefully the fact that there was no force or Jedi stuff in it uh, felt a little better to you once you see it a second time. So. Um, and then Jeffrey uh, Fishback at Porgbot said, it was an awesome film. All my predictions were wrong, except for one. L3 becoming the Falcon's computer. That was the only one I had right. Love all the new characters. And add Kira and FS Nez to my favorites list. Alden Ehrenreich knocked it out of the park. I mean, he crushed it like an Aaron Judge homer, <laughs> which I would agree oh, with. <laughs> I always appreciate the Yankees reference, though. I'm the only one, but I appreciate it. So. And then Stephanie uh, Gallardo at uh, Steph Gallardo says, what I really love about this movie is that it is truly for everyone. Don't need to be a Star Wars fan to enjoy. Obviously, if you are, you will get the references, but that doesn't take away the magic for the non-hardcore fans. 
And then on Facebook, we got some comments. Uh, first off, from Brian V. Klein says, I loved it. Had a blast. I yelled out a holy blank <laughs> at my theater at the end. You know which part. Alden and Donald nailed their parts as well as the other characters. Fun, fun, fun. Seeing it again two more times this weekend. Then Jason Morgan says, seeing it today with my son, we both loved it. Alden hit the mark for me as Han, and Donald nailed it as Lando. Can't wait to add this to my Star Wars collection. And then finally, Mike LG said, a brilliant. Sets up for a sequel and a spinoff with the hologram twist. Trying hard to be spoiler-free, <laughs> which I didn't see coming. So, yeah, I mean, at least from our followers on social media and Facebook and listeners, like everyone enjoyed it. I got one comment from someone who really hated it, but it kind of sounded like a hater going into it <laughs> from the <laughs> get-go. But uh, for the most part, I mean, just seeing some positive reactions to it for those who do see it. I think the problem is people not seeing it. <laughs> but once they do, they realize what a good, fun movie it is. And for the hardcore Star Wars fans, it's a lot of stuff to geek out over. So it's good to see that. Overall, I think there's a positive vibe for it for those who end up going to see the movie. Yeah, for sure. Especially among the hardcore fans, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. um, it was weird because when I was at um, that convention over the weekend, like everybody that I talked to who had seen it, like loved it. And I was actually talking to a couple of like Star Wars comic artists and stuff like that that were there as guests. Um, you know, we would just stop by their booths and we'd be chatting with them about the movie and we were all raving about it and how, you know, how much we enjoyed it and stuff. Um, and then to like get home after that weekend and see the box office numbers and some of the negative reviews and stuff, I was like, really? Like, were we all watching the same movie? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've seen that phrase a lot. Were we watching the same movie? <laughs> a lot of tweets I've seen. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And on, I mean, obviously, like I said, I mean, it wasn't perfect and you know, there was some stuff that didn't quite hit the mark for me, but it was a lot of fun. So um, definitely a, a good addition to uh, to the Star Wars library of films that we've got right now. So without a doubt, good stuff. Um, well, I think we're just about ready to uh, send it off here. Um, if nobody's got any additional thoughts or anything that they want to add. <laughs> well, I do have some additional thoughts, but we could save those for another. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah, we'll have to have a, a solo aftermath podcast. Yeah. <laughs> After um, hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap this episode up for now then. Um, as always, you guys can check us out online. Find us on Twitter at Star Wars TSC. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Star Wars The Saga Continues. You can send us email at Star Wars TSC at gmail.com. And you can always check out our website, Star Wars TSC.com to find all of our episodes and all of our news stories and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we always love to get, um, you know, comments and tweets and emails and stuff from you guys and to, uh, you know, join in the discussion with us and get your thoughts on all this kind of stuff. So thanks to all you guys who uh, chimed in with your thoughts for this episode. Um, we look forward to keeping the discussion going with you guys and, uh, you know, we'll be back, um, you know, I'm sure sometime soon. Um, cause we have stuff that we were going to talk about on this episode that we didn't even get to, but you know, we had, many uh many things to talk about with the solo movie so um, it's been a lot of fun hope you guys enjoyed it thank you so much for tuning in uh we will see you next time and may the force be with you see you next time everybody